One of my favorite experiences on a podcast is when there's somebody who unlocks an entire new map of the cosmos internally or externally that can give me access to wisdom that formerly I didn't have available. And that's what Dr. Robert Gilbert is doing on this show. He's illuminating the Rosicrucian model and talking about Zoroastrian models, models of the cosmos, both internally and externally, that I was unfamiliar with, that I've allowed to work through my system and now inform my own beliefs about reality. This is a wild, powerful, interesting podcast that talks about everything from the Christ, the Satan, the Lucifer, the Rosicrucians, the Freemasons. I mean, come on, y'all. This podcast is awesome. But before we get started, a word from our sponsors. First up, we have Four Visions Market. And Four Visions Market is kind of my go-to place for a lot of shamanic tools. It supports over 30 different indigenous artists and their families through more than fair trade purchase. So their spiritual tools and art. They got high quality made in prayer medicines. It's a bridge to over 15 Amazonian tribes that are sharing their traditions and really their magic and medicine. 50% of the proceeds are going to go directly to the tribes, artisans, and healers. And on top of that, Four Visions Market donates 10% of their profits to their partner nonprofit movement for Amazonian growth in indigenous cultures. They call it the Magic Fund and other different Amazonian operations with missions that are aligned with their values. This year, Four Visions Market, they're spearheading a native plant reforestation and seed preservation project in the Colombian Amazon, as well as a bunch of different support for the Putumayo region and the hundreds of indigenous people there. The tools from the Four Visions Markets, they're all handcrafted if you're talking about caripes or tepes, and all of the different botanicals, they're wild harvested, again, in sacred prayer and the proper way. And you're really receiving you know, genuine medicinal tools from these incredible traditions. So some of the products they include, they have an Ambi Sacha Yage microdose tincture, ceremonial grade cacaos, Amazonian king nettle, Melipona honey eye drops for eye health, nausea oil for nasal support, Achilcuagwe healing spray, and of course their hape, which I absolutely love. So if you're interested in any of these goodies, check out 4visionsmarket.com dot com f-o-u-r visionsmarket.com and use the code amp amp for 15 percent off your very first order next up we have bond charge now unless you've been living under a rock you probably understand the benefits of sauna and red light therapy but not all of us are able to acquire a red light sauna and put it in our garage or put it in our house so one of the technologies that can be used is a sauna blanket and Bond Charge makes the best version of these sauna blankets that I've ever encountered. So imagine instead of having to go into a sauna, you just have a blanket that's providing that heat and that red light therapy. So instead of having to go into a sauna, you get the heat and the red light therapy in blanket form. So you can make a little nest you can put on your Bond Charge sauna blanket and start to experience the benefits of the heat and the sweat and the red light therapy. So this is an incredible solution to get into one of these restorative practices that is really necessary for our fast-paced lifestyle, a lifestyle that requires us dropping into these deeper healing modalities. So I really encourage you guys to check out 
all of Bond Charge's products, but especially the sauna blanket. So if you go to bondcharge.com, B-O-N-C-H-A-R-G-E.com slash AMP, you can use the coupon code AMP to save 15%. That's bondcharge.com slash AMP, coupon code AMP to save 15%, which equates to $140 off your very own sauna blanket. Check it out. And if you're still on the fence, recognize that Bond Charge ships worldwide, has an easy return and exchange policy, a 12-month warranty, and all of their red light devices come in small, portable options. It's a great solution. So check it out, bondcharge.com amp. So without further ado, Dr. Robert Gilbert. I always open with a prayer that, you know, may these words find the people who need them most and may this transmission be in service of the good of all and uh, all of life in the cosmos and, and just find the ears and the hearts, particularly the hearts and the minds that are ready to be lifted supported, evolved, liberated, whatever the medicine may be, we understand that we're here in service to a greater purpose. All right, here we are. Here we are. (laughs) I've been really looking forward to this podcast. And one of the things that I look forward to more than anything else in a podcast is when I get to explore something that I'm lightly familiar with through my own, you know, 24 years of psychonautic adventure and, and philosophy and experience. But there's a corner of the universe that hasn't been well illuminated. So like I went deep into the Kabbalion and like got to explore the hermetic principles and, yes. and it was like, yes, amazing. <laughs> or like Mahayana Buddhism or the, or the wisdom of Solomon or something new that I get to explore. Yeah. And I feel that emerging with the Rosicrucians and also the relationship between the Rosicrucians and Gnostic Christianity. So let's just start with a cursory understanding of what I mean and what is meant by saying the word Rosicrucian or Gnosticism. Okay. And then eventually, you know, I want to get to Zoroastrianism. I know that that, that ties in. So I want to leave these breadcrumbs. So like, let's, let's explore these different categories here. And, uh, and try to put language and experience to some of these constructs that have existed. And then we can illuminate the wisdom that's been kind of encoded for so many years. Okay, that sounds good. So when we use the term Rosicrucian, it comes from the root of the Rose Cross. One of the fundamental spiritual concepts here is that it's understood in the European Rosicrucian tradition that when we incarnate into the physical body, it's a kind of crucifixion that the physical body 
is a vehicle, as it's described in the Indian Vedic tradition. It's a vehicle or a sheath for spirit to work through. But by moving into the physical body, it's like a black cross. It's a concept that you find in ancient Greece as well, where they would say in Plato's writings that the world soul is crucified on the, the world cross and that the human being is crucified in the cross of the physical body. So it opens up particular experiences and education for us in a physical body, but it also opens us up to potential suffering in a physical body. Or ecstasy. Potentially, yes. Potentially? But the, when was the last time you had sex? Come on, <laughs> come on, doctor. You know, like it's there. It's Absolutely. available. Absolutely. But if we are, we're going to understand where they're coming from with the Rose Cross concept, the foundation of it is that the physical body is like a black cross that we incarnate into uh -huh. of the four elements. And then what we can do is we can activate the energy centers of the physical body, like you're talking about with sex, with Tantra, etc. And the activated energy centers can be brought into such activity that they become like a blooming rose in the energy body. Mm -hmm. So the rose cross is the black cross of the physical body with the activated energy centers becoming so full of life and activity that what we think of as the seven chakras become like seven roses in the human energy body, mm -hmm. full of life and vitality. And so it's about the experience of being in the physical body, in the physical plane, as a spiritual being, and raising the potential of the physical body to where it becomes a vehicle for the spirit, a vehicle for higher experience, a vehicle for education. And so this Rose Cross idea then became the image for a particular group of spiritual initiates in Central Europe. What time? Roughly 500 years ago, the early 1500s, we began to get the publication of certain texts, mostly around present-day Czech Republic, Germany, areas of, of Europe. And they described that there was a hidden group of initiates, the Rosicrucians, that had this very advanced knowledge. If we're to understand this in a larger context, though, we need to understand that there are certain universal hermetic principles and teachings that have been around for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. And uh, most of the time, we trace them back to ancient Egypt with the original emerald tablet and the classic hermetic teachings. And so it's understood that those teachings... Which is probably just Egypt taking credit for a lot of shit that happened in the Atlantean pre-Diluvian times. Exactly. But, all right, we'll give Egypt credit. <laughs> right, right. But I mean, if we go back to the Greek teachings, because some of the deeper teachings from Egypt weren't recorded in anything that we have access to today in Egypt, they were recorded by the Greeks who went to Egypt. And mm -hmm. so that's where we find the writings of Plato. And so in Plato's dialogues, he mentions about a Greek named Solon who went to train in the Egyptian temples. And the Egyptian priest is basically making fun of Solon and saying, you Greeks are like little children. There's no ancient knowledge among you. Our knowledge goes all the way back to the previous epoch, and it goes back to ancient Atlantis. Mm -hmm. So the whole concept of Atlantis is something that we get from the Egyptians right. as brought to us by the Greeks. But the idea is that there are certain universal principles of life and of spiritual development and understanding who am I, why am I here, what's the purpose of all this, that the expression of it will change form in different periods of human history. 
So the form that it took in the old Egyptian epoch was a bit different than what it took in the Jewish Kabbalah and a bit different than how it then appeared in Mm -hmm. Greece and Europe. And by the time we get to the 1500s, it really took the form of the Rosicrucian tradition in Europe. Why do you think they chose the metaphor, basically, of the crucifixion? Because it it seems like, and and again, you could feel my bristling at the idea of the incarnation being a crucifixion, because crucifixion is a very dark thing. It's a very, very fucking dark thing. It's a very painful thing. Your hands are nailed, your feet are nailed, your, you know, whatever the fuck else is happening on the cross. It's, it's a nightmare. Yes. Basically. Right. So, and this is Gehenna suffering in Buddhism, but there's, you know, other ways to look at life as a, as the way, you know, to actually experience erotic life force energy through the body as yes. a vehicle to actually, wow, I can smell, I can touch, I can taste. Why do you think they chose the crucifixion? And, and obviously, I think the, by placing the rose in there, they're actually doing a form of alchemy. Yes, exactly. To, to the crucifixion. And exactly. I think that may be where it's lying. So it's maybe actually... So, so I'm curious as to like why they chose that crucifixion as a metaphor and then what the rose means and how that, how that actually performed the alchemy that I'm intuiting that is, is what was going on. So what's been done for thousands of years in spiritual traditions is that certain experiences that one has on higher levels of spiritual initiation then get translated into a, a type of image, often a visual image that is what my teacher from the Clear Vision School of Australia, who was uh, the French medical doctor, Samuel Sagan, he would refer to as uh, the principle of the packed thought form. So certain things that are non-physical principles can be experienced in a download or in a spiritual experience in just a moment. It's like a eureka experience where you can perceive a tremendous amount of higher information in a moment's transmission. Mm -hmm. And so this packed thought form can take the form of a visual image. So a literal image of a black cross with seven red roses coming out of it was the way that they expressed this direct experience that from being out of the body in the spiritual world and moving through the stages of condensation to end up in a small, helpless infant's body, in a physical body, in what in the Hindu tradition they call the sheath made of food, Mm. to get reduced in scale to that level and put into this localized physical matrix is something that does feel rather like a crucifixion. It is a being placed in the much more expansive spiritual body into the small physical container. And in that physical container, certain suffering is possible. It's uh, one of the the ideas that I think a lot of people have is that like we're a a vessel for the soul. And when you break the vessel, then the soul gets to leave. But actually the soul is present always. So actually our, our essence, our life force, our soul self exists in embodiment yes. and also it's not like it emer- it leaves the body 
and it's then all of a sudden it's realized it's no it's it's always there yes but there is a, there is an aspect of the flesh bringing in all of the levels of suffering in the mind the the personal mind the separate mm-hmm. self mind yeah. that brings in all the levels of suffering so there's a the physical stimulus of the pain there's the mental stimulus of the separate self pain you know that then can create suffering due to the resistance to that pain and and the relationship to that sensation but i think it's the way that i've always seen it is that it's not like we have a soul that gets released. It's like we have a soul that's always there and it's participating in the body form. Is that in alignment with the teaching of the Rosicrucians or did they have more of a, all right, everything's packed into this body and then if you kill the body, then it's all released? No, it's very much a question of their understanding was that we have to have the experience of incarnating into the physical body into a series of physical bodies over time Mm -hmm. to get the education of the soul and to grow the consciousness and to grow the level of siddhas or powers that a person can have through that experiential base. So the physical incarnation is absolutely necessary because there's also in spiritual, some spiritual traditions, the idea that well, maybe the physical world is just a maya, maybe it's just an illusion, maybe we just get off the cycle of karma and reincarnation and don't come back because this can be a plane of suffering. But the Rosicrucian view Those of people it, aren't having enough fun. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> so the Rosicrucian view is, no, we have to incarnate into the physical body. And we have to also understand that at that time, this was at the very beginning of the Protestant Reformation, and there'd been a lot of suppressing of free spiritual activity in Europe for a long period of time with the Catholic Church. You don't say. And it was all based on, you know, the nobility of suffering and not having the, the freedom to have any experience or experimentation with the conditions of the physical body or physical life. It was very regimented and very restricted. And so their teaching was in some ways heretical that out of the incarnation of the physical body, which is absolutely necessary, we can actually, through our own spiritual activity, bring in the ripening of the potential. It's like a, the physical body being like a seed put in the earth. Mm. When that grows, when it ripens, it becomes these beautiful red roses of the activated energy mm-hmm. centers, which means that we can use our physical incarnation to attain these much, much higher states. And evolve. Absolutely. The it gets very interesting from a cosmic perspective when you think about evolution because evolution requires time actually because if you don't have if you don't have the construct of time then how are you evolving you're already right. there or or not there you know in the timeless place you're yeah. everything and nothing and and like but but the telos the direction of evolution exactly. requires yes. time which requires a body which requires like a lot of different aspects that kind of start to layer in into this beautiful, synchronized, magical existence, multidimensional existence that we that we live in. And that gives rise to the whole concept of the teleological destination, that there's something in the stream of time, having incarnated into space and time, that is pulling us toward our spiritual destiny toward the full manifestation of our spiritual potential. And this may come in all types of inspirations and dreams and downloads that we receive, but it's almost like there's something in the future, even though from a higher perspective, all the moments in time are simultaneous. 
Mm. But if we look at it from a linear perspective, the concept, like in the Greek tradition with the teleos, is that it's we're being pulled toward what we have as the full manifestation of our spiritual potential. Right. When all of the seven red roses are manifested in the human energy field. And so this shows that there's a type of alchemy that needs to be done while we're physically present, done in our consciousness, done in our energy, done in our activities. Mm. And then that gets into a lot of very specific types of practices that the Egyptians would would do that then transformed into the Jewish Kabbalistic and then transformed into the European yeah. tradition. And, and may, it may have had deeper, even deeper roots, Atlantean roots oh, that spread through many different schools. That's what the Egyptians themselves said, is that this is all from Atlantis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. indeed. All right, so if I'm going to, now I'm going to try and make a make the the leap to try and understand the relationship between the Rosicrucians and the Gnostic Christians. Yes. And what, so what's the correlation and differentiation? So when did, what's, how do you disambiguate the Gnostic Christians and the Rosicrucians? So a lot of the Gnostic Christian tradition is really pre-Rosicrucian. It's around the 1500s that there's any public discussion of the Rosicrucians. Rosicrucians, And so what happened in the early Christian centuries is that nothing was formalized yet. People were receiving these tremendous spiritual experiences and downloads in their own direct experience of non-physical realities and trying to understand what's the nature of the Christ being? Mm -hmm. What's the nature of developing Christ consciousness? What's the nature of accessing the power of the sun, which is what they understood to be embodied with the Christ, the solar logos? How do we bring that power of the sun into ourselves to bring that spiritual fire and light and heat into our chemical process to maximize all of our potential Mm -hmm. of what we can become. And so there were many different schools of thought about what is this all about? How do we understand it? And so one of those became what we think of today as the Gnostic Christian tradition. And so this has to do with the different ways to perceive what is it to be incarnated on the physical plane? Why am I here? What's this about? And then to what degree is that something beneficial or not beneficial? You know, working with ideas in the Gnostic tradition, like the Demiurge, the dark Lord of the earth. That Yeah, was let's a major go slow here. Explain the Demiurge. So the Demiurge was one way to understand what are the spiritual forces that are involved with taking all these non-physical spiritual beings and spiritual energies from the divine world and taking them through a series of alchemical steps to crystallize them into physical reality for us to actually, as a spiritual being, move into a physical body, for the physical earth to be formed out of higher divine powers. Mm -hmm. And so there was the understanding that there were certain spiritual beings involved in that process of physical crystallization. And one way it was described by the Gnostics was as the Demiurge. That's a particular type of spiritual being involved in the crystallization process. And again, this was seen somewhat differently by different groups. So my understanding of this is that there's, and this comes from my own journey experience, from conversations with Matthias Stefano, lots of different sources, but ultimately there's the clear, pure light of source, right? But it's undifferentiated. It's like it's the it's the moment of the Big Bang where everything is just all pure potentiality, homogenous in its in its 
form at that. And, and astrophysicists will say that the universe was about the size of the tip of your finger, you know, and it's just all just pure packed white light, pure light, like the source light, all the all color, the all light, the all sound, and then it differentiates. And then the creation actually came from creating prisms of distortion, which actually and distortion is an interesting word, but it actually is more like a prism that just refracts the light so that now instead of the pure light, just like you do with actual light, you can use a prism to break, break it into a rainbow. Yes. Right? Even a drop of water. That's what a, that's what a rainbow actually is. Yeah. Water, it's a refracting the light so that now you see seven colors instead of seeing just light, just the sun. Yes. It's not like, wow, seven colors. Holy shit, it's beautiful. <laughs> right? So it's like, yeah. it's the distortion is like the creation of the prism. So is that accurate to say that the demiurge is like the creation of these different prisms that, that refract, the, refract the pure light? I think from the Gnostic perspective, they would see it more as the demiurge is part of a later stage of alchemical crystallization into physical matter because it goes through multiple stages. So if we look at it from probably the easiest way to understand it today, the system that we use to understand different planes of creation and this alchemical step-by-step process today in the West is basically from the theosophist. So we start with the divine plane. At the divine plane, everything is one. Everything's a unity. Nothing's differentiated. Source light. Source light, pure, clear light. Mm-hmm. And then the next step is to move from, in sacred numerology, from the one to the two. And so we go from where everything is one and unity to a differentiation into yin and yang, differentiation into masculine and feminine. And that's where you get... Polarity. The, absolutely. Polarity gets created. But at its most fundamental stage, polarity is not polarity of the physical plane. It is polarity of beings. It's polarities of consciousness, polarities of energy. And that's where we get in the Indian tradition the idea of the Shiva and Shakti mm-hmm. as the actual higher spiritual personification of the male and female, which then have to be reunified in tantric work to go back to the highest divine clear light plane. From that spiritual plane, we're beginning to differentiate out first the pure polarities. Then we go into the deeper aspects of the prism where all of the inherent potential for difference, then gets manifested out. And you then go from spiritual plane to the causal plane, where it would be understood that through our actions, we create our karma. We have particular patterns in our life, certain things that we have as potential, certain things that our telios is drawing us toward Mm. to manifest as a fully awakened, activated siddha or power. And then from the causal plane to the mental and the emotional, sometimes one or both of those referred to as the astral, and then into the vitality or etheric chi, ki, prana Mm. level of pure life energy. That forms then the pattern in energy that then is the blueprint for the crystallization of physical matter, the physical plane. Different beings and processes are involved with every stage of that alchemical movement. And then the demiurge is involved at that last stage of the actual crystallization of the energy pattern into the physical matter whether it's our physical body or whether it's the physical earth we're living in. So, so the urge feels like it's a desire, like something's being drawn forth. Like there's a, is, is, so is urge the right word? Like we're, we're, we're drawn forth. 
into this by some force. We can certainly see it that way. In the original language, the demiurge, it may not be as involved with the English concept of, of urge, but certainly it was understood that there was always a desire nature involved in it because there would be no life if we didn't have the desire to unify with the, the other uh-huh. and then bring forth new life, which only happens through the alchemical merger of opposites. It's always the case in higher alchemy that it's bringing together the two opposite polarities in the right way that opens up the gateway to the divine plane, back to the source light. And so this is the, the key to everything. It's going to be at the first level, a kind of subconscious desire, a subconscious urge that pulls us toward whatever it is we need for that process to take its place. Then as we become self-aware, we illuminate that and we're conscious of it, which means we can work with it in more conscious ways to help to develop our own, as the Rosicrucians would say, the seven red roses, or the potential siddhas in our own energy body. Mm. So we're not just an animal being pulled towards something through subconscious urges, although that in itself is something natural and needed in the process. But as we become more conscious, we can bring more light, more love, more awareness into the process to help us develop ourselves into our fully awakened, activated form. So is the demiurge then value neutral in that it's it's creating all of the positive aspects of love, truth, beauty, transformation, and also all of the negative aspects of distortion, delusion, you know, separation, all of that as well? Is it is it value neutral, the demiurge? Is it just more a force of creation? In many aspects of the Gnostic tradition, it's viewed as something negative. It's viewed as a force that pulls us down into darkness and some type of over-manifestation, over-materialization. But again, this is seen differently by different uh, groups and and sects within things. Like when we use a term like Gnostic, it, it actually pertains to many different groups and, right. and teachers and people having direct experience of it. So some may see it as a more negative thing, and you can find Gnostic teachings that really see the demiurge as a type of opposition force that we have to overcome. But it could be seen by others as an absolutely essential part of the process of a full alchemical movement from the clear light unity space through all the different planes into crystallization on the physical plane, which actually gives us the potential for freedom. And this then leads to one of the most important concepts of the Rosicrucians that I help think makes sense of the whole process, which is one of the most advanced Rosicrucian teachers ever to go public was uh, Rudolf Steiner. Mm. And so Steiner had the idea that if you look at the Gnostic teachings about the spiritual beings that are around us all the time, that then developed into esoteric Christianity, uh, we have an understanding of multiple ranks of angelic beings above us. Mm-hmm. Angels, archangels, archai, etc. Seraphim. Yep. Exactly. They all have different stages of consciousness, stages of development, different powers, things that they do. But there's the understanding that just as they have names that give them their identification for what their whole process is at that alchemical level, the human being's alchemical name is spirits of love and freedom. That's the Rosicrucian concept. That's the two key polarities that, according to the Rosicrucians, we're here on the physical plane to try to master. Now, this leads then to... So, ghosts, so spirits okay. of love and freedom is what they describe humans That's as? right. So, so we are spirits of love and freedom. That is our... That's esoteric. the fundamental core belief. 
Yes. Uh-huh. And that is all about what we're here for, because these are two opposite siddhas, two opposite powers, two opposite abilities. So in, why are love and freedom opposites? Because the love is understood as the force that makes us want to unify with another uh-huh. being and return to the clear light, the one right, state, right, 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 right. in complete unity. And the freedom is the ability to separate out of that. So as my you know, teacher, Kabbalist mystic teacher Mark Gaffney would say, it's the forces of allurement, the drawing towards, to, uh-huh. to, and autonomy. Yes. To actually be distinct and sovereign. That's right. Allurement and autonomy, love and freedom. Yes. And okay. we can also see that in terms of this alchemical ladder from the divine plane of complete unity and merging at mm-hmm. the top, where there's, we're not a separate being there. We're a part of the complete one. And then at the most crystallized level on the physical plane, in a sense, we're the most free or we're the most separate. Yeah. This could also be seen as a type of suffering by some traditions, but we are the most separate, but it gives us the most freedom. And so understanding that we're spirits of love and freedom is how do we hold a balance? There has to be a dynamic balance between these things. Now, in the Chinese tradition, they talk about the heart pains, like the nine different heart pains. These are the things that we associate a lot of pain and suffering with in our lives. And that's because we're always searching for the other. We're searching for that perfect relationship. We need that that other person to merge with to be able to reach the divine plane when the two polarities become one and we merge so deeply with the other in love that we can't tell ourselves apart from Mm. the loved one and that's like the highest spiritual experience that we have in tantra and love and sex sure it's what we all seek now there's an aspect in this of that merging uh that again this concept coming from dr samuel sagan uh, my late teacher from the Clairvision School in Australia, he had this idea of combinescence. So you may be doing an advanced spiritual practice, maybe you're doing a lot of psychotropics, but you're perceiving a certain non-physical reality on a higher plane. Mm-hmm. That physical reality may appear to be one large being, great radiant being of light on a higher level that you're directly perceiving. But then you see that out of this great being of light, other smaller beings begin to move out of that larger composite being. Mm -hmm. And you begin to understand that this being is a composite of multiple beings. Just like we are a composite of trillions of cells. Exactly. And so this idea of combinescence is that out of the physical body and these higher non-physical realms and planes, beings can actually have the love, the unity impulse to where they merge so fully that they appear to be one great light being but they still have the freedom to separate back out mm-hmm. to have an independent path of action. Now, the microcosm of this in our physical lives is trying to find the right romantic love connection so we can have the perfect alchemical tantric merger where there's no separation with the partner and we have that feeling again of that connection to the divine, to the unity stage. That's sure. why like, the best sex is always said to be like a spiritual experience. But at the same time, that won't work out unless we have enough freedom in our lives to pursue our own path in the midst of that. And so, again, spirits of love and freedom is the core Rosicrucian concept of what Mm -hmm. we're all about. How do we have the perfect development of both so we can merge and combinesce with the partner when we choose and return to the divine one state and still have the freedom to separate out and take our own path when we choose or when we need to? 
Yeah, there's a, a recognition of the beauty of even with the suffering and even with the pain and all of that, we are in a stage of radical freedom because of the degree of separation yes. that we've gone from yes. unity with the source field. We have maximum separation at, at this point in time. And also the ability through different technologies, whether they're psychedelic technologies or whether they're psychonautic technologies or breath work and dance or sexual t- tantric technologies, we have yes. ways that we can find the merger, but also abide in radical autonomy as well so it's it's a very i've always felt like human beings are in this kind of like we're in this kind of golden golden zone of having the full potential to go radically merge with the one with the source and also radical autonomy and sovereignty and to understand that and to say like yeah there's a lot of things that are challenging but there's also a great beauty to this place that we are right now because yes. we really have all access to the full gamut of expression of what life and evolution could look like. And, and there's a beautiful encapsulization of this in a statement by Khalil Gibran in The Prophet, where he says, you know, our pain is the breaking of the shell that surrounds our understanding. Mm. And so it's understood that the suffering on the path is finite but the gifts of the path are infinite. Mm-hmm. And so we have to see that, that suffering aspect as something that is contextual. Mm-hmm. And we can develop to the point that we get into more non-resistance to the suffering that is incumbent in physical experience on, the, on yeah. this plane because we're so focused and so understanding of where this is bringing us to something that is so beautiful and so empowered yeah. that to become, as the Rosicrucians would see it in their tradition, a spirit of love and freedom that now is a free agent in the universe to be able to go anywhere and do anything at the end of our process of development here in this crystallized state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's, it's a beautiful explication. Um, all right, so if... If I'm understanding Rosicrucians then, then they've sourced some info from Gnostic Christianity, sourced some info from Egyptian mythology, which was again sourced from Atlantean mythology and Mm -hmm. and spiritual concepts, hermetic principles, which may go all the way also back way farther than the Egyptian, way farther than absolutely. So it's like hermeticism, Gnostic Christianity, a variety of different things. And then a, an actual group of people get together and they say, all right, we're going to make our own codex of symbols, which is going to be the black cross, the seven red roses. And we're going to, we're going to actually come forth, call ourselves the Rosicrucians, develop an order. Was it like a secret society? Like, so, so, but basically they source all of this information in, you know, 1500s and they're like, we're the Rosicrucians. These are our symbols. We're condensing all of this higher wisdom into this framework and then starting to put forth content. Is that kind of what happened? Yes. The, you know, the, the real publications that caught on were in the 1600s. Some of the spiritual work was going on back in the 1400s, but it was really developing as a process. Now, the Rosicrucians themselves would look at this as a process that was basically essentially non-physical in nature. So it wasn't necessarily that they had like physical books or text from the Gnostics or from Egypt or things of that kind, although they may have had access to some of those and some of those teachings on the physical plane. 
But it was more of an understanding that there were human beings that had gone through initiatory processes in Atlantis, Egypt, Mm -hmm. these other time periods, the Essenes, that now in their latest incarnation, with that being held within their consciousness, within their energy, are bringing it into modern earth and cultural conditions. Mm -hmm. And so it always has to be changed somewhat in, in how it's expressed. And so they develop new images based on that, new expressions of it, new terms. And so the esoteric group, really, that the Rosicrucians came out of after the early Christian centuries was the Holy Grail tradition. Now, the primary way of representing the Holy Grail tradition was in the Grail Cup. But it was understood that there is a toroidal energy field around a human energy body that's shaped like a Grail Cup, open at the top, coming into the heart at its narrowest point, and then spreading out at the bottom. And that toroidal field then circulates around the human energy body. That the Christ being is a force related to the alchemical power of the sun that can be brought in from the areas above the human head in tantric practices and brought in to the top of the grail cup of our own body and our own energy field and circulated inside as a way to develop ourselves to a higher alchemical state. Now, that Holy Grail tradition then went from its origins around the ninth century into then about 500 years ago with the Rosicrucian order in Europe and began to use this new imagery. It's all an alchemical process moving forward. But this was then understood among the Rosicrucians that there was no real physical group or order as a physical institution. It wasn't like a church or something where they had like some particular church they get together with. So it wasn't like the Masons? Not really. Now, there are some connections between the Masons and Rosicrucians, but that gets a little bit more complex. Bracket that for later. We'll bracket I that for a little bit later. I want to talk about the Masons because I okay. saw you talk about them a little bit. Yes. But in the beginning, it was really that these people who had been initiates in the earlier times were now incarnating into Central Europe. And they carried with them the fruits of those earlier incarnations. Mm-hmm. They held it inside of themselves as, as siddhas and knowledge. And the core of the Rosicrucian tradition, this is why it was not accepted by the Catholic Church and things like this. The core of it was that you don't go through any external human being or physical institution to connect a spirit. You connect a spirit directly up your own energy column. Mm-hmm. You connect to higher worlds, higher beings, spiritual inspiration. You don't have to go through an intermediary. It's all about Hard to make money if you don't have an intermediary. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Catholic Church didn't appreciate that at all. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that was was taking away their power. And again, one reason that this Rosicrucian reformulation of the Grail tradition happened around this time is it was the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. There are people saying, we want to still have an understanding of the Christ impulse, but we don't want to be stuck in this authoritarian control structure that the Catholic Church has created. So around that time, the Rosicrucians come out. Now, we have to remember that in the Grail tradition, there were certain Grail groups in Europe, like the Cathars and the Albigensians and the Bogomils, that were killed by the Vatican armies. That's where we get the whole statement about, kill them all, God will sort them out. That comes from a statement by one of the, the generals of the Vatican armies, that they're going to kill every man, woman, and child in the Grail communities in the south of France and God will know his own. So 
This had been savagely suppressed and murders by the, the Catholic Church and the Vatican for years. And so that was part of that earlier grail time, now moving into the Rosicrucian time. And they're writing on the so way. This is like an early form of an inquisition against these Gnostic grail. Oh, absolutely. And I think one of the tricks that, and we'll talk about the force behind the tricks of, yeah. you know, empire, you know, Araman, and then this yes. kind of, these kind of energies. And I, I'm very excited to get into that. But I think one of the tricks is they've tried to trick us into conceiving of these things as literal, right? Yes. Like the people who are looking for the grail were actually looking for a cup. <laughs> exactly. And the cup had magical powers. Yeah. And then because the cup held the blood of Christ. No, <laughs> no. The Christ energy is the energy of the source light that comes, pours through the crown, exactly. opens the heart. And it is the secret to immortality because you merge with the source field of all life, eternal life. Yes. Yes. So yes, it is. But this is a metaphor. This is not about a cup. This is not Indiana Jones. That's right. Where there's a, <laughs> a special little cup and it's a cool story and whatever. But it, the, even that story is a metaphor. Yes. You know, and everything is is metaphorically understood. And actually, the suppression was not against actual people who are looking for an actual cup. It was for people who are living and abiding by this idea that undermined the power structure Absolutely. of the church at the time. Absolutely. That's exactly the case. And so the Rosicrucians were adamant about this thing that you don't have to go through another person, don't have to go through an external institution. You develop the ability to directly connect a spirit and have your spiritual development that way. That's what they were all about. But there was no physical organization to join. That was like a big thing for the Rosicrucians. We don't have a physical organization for you to join. That only came later. A few hundred years later, we began to have in Europe and North America people creating Rosicrucian organizations based on these principles but they somewhat formed them on the ideas coming from the Freemasons, mm -hmm. like a series of initiations and grades. And that can be beneficial for certain people at certain times. It also exposes you to attack. As soon as you, you say, like, I'm a Cathar, they're like, well, kill them all, <laughs> let God sort them out. Like, there's a lot of shit that can happen as soon as you actually crystallize. The other challenge that form. can, exactly. And the other challenge that can happen is that it can lead to people getting caught up in the political machinations of the organization trying to move to higher and higher grades in this type of external institution rather than the direct connection to spirit and having a that mm -hmm. trajectory of development. Again, it can lead to somewhat, I'm going through this external institution, I'm going through this particular leader of that group, whatever it is. It's yeah, there's there's a lot of pitfalls of hierarchy and exactly and, and not that hierarchy can't be helpful in organizing you know a mission a plan a directive etc and i think we've become allergic to hierarchy because of the abuse of hierarchy yes absolutely and it may be the case as well that we see this in context people that have had a lot of initiatory experience in previous incarnations are at the stage of development that they simply can't tolerate being beholden to an external institution or something of that kind as a thing they have to go through to connect a spirit. For sure. Uh, but people that don't have as much initiatory experience, they may feel they need the support of that type of organization to give them some type of structure or guidance on the process 
which requires a lot more pulling it out of yourself if you're going to connect directly. But it's important, I think, to understand that the original Rosicrucians were not about any external physical organization. It was all about your connecting directly to spirit. And although these initiates may recognize one another and they may work together on the physical plane at certain times, they would often themselves say that a lot of their connection was not physical. It was on a spiritual level. Sure. And they're because they're conscious on that level to be able to work together. And so the idea, though, that there were these great European initiates in a Christian context that had a level of development equivalent to what we might see in the Indian tradition or the Chinese Taoist tradition mm-hmm. or something is something that was very exciting at the time and still is exciting to people today that there's a Western version of right. that type of very advanced spiritual knowledge. Yeah, it's and important to recover that lineage and yes. understand that it wasn't entirely broken. All of these, you know, empire, as is the term that I like to use, you know, to describe it, it's just the force. It's that force of control and domination. And the, we'll talk about these, these forces from the extra dimensional perspective, but empire seeks to break all of these lineages and includes the more kind of, pagan in the good way sense of the earth-based traditions of the druids you know at the yes. same time at the same time that the roman army was going to decimate and destroy the the hebrews they were also going up to destroy the druids you know both different peoples who had access to direct communication with source which then would you know leave no authority and no power are not enough power for the empire that seek to have all the power and all the control. Absolutely. In some esoteric Christian circles, it was considered that the Druid uh, tradition in the Celtic lands had one of the healthiest ways of incorporating the Christ impulse into their work, that they were so tuned into the elemental forces of the earth and what was happening with the nature energies they could perceive when these higher alchemical energies came into the land mm-hmm. and came into the world. And it wasn't until later where the Catholic Church comes in and starts to try to affect the, the, the Celtic lands as well as they had taking over Europe that it began to get more rigidified and began to have more of the unpleasant aspects of external Christianity and lost some of that beautiful original Celtic Christianity that mm-hmm. it began with. Yeah. Uh, I want to weave a couple threads in here as well. So you hear something like the Knights Templar. Yes. Who were they? What were they, what were they doing? So the Knights Templar developed as an order within the Catholic Church, but they were always considered uh, as something that needed to be observed by the Catholic Church because they were extremely dedicated to their own goals. Now, at this time, the Catholic Church basically dominated all of Western Europe. So uh, the Templars developed inside of that. But the Knights of the Temple were basically a monastic order. So these are people that had taken vows of chastity, poverty, and obedience to be able to mm. work for spiritual purposes in the Probably world. Probably wasn't a Knights Templar in a past life. <laughs> <laughs> well, you never know, because what happens No, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I'm pretty sure, doctor. <laughs> Is that sometimes people will have great tantric incarnations, and then 
So we have the complete spectrum of experience. We'll go into a monastic experience where we don't have any of it. And then we realize, wow, I really like that tantric experience. And <laughs> yeah, then we get right, back right, into that. I understand. I understand. <laughs> I understand. So that way we cover the gamut. But uh, these are people that really wanted to serve a spiritual purpose. Now, we could talk a lot about the historical aspect of the Knights Templar, but just to talk about the real spiritual impulse behind it. So the Knights Templar were people that were working toward creating a spiritualized earth, mm-hmm. a new spiritualized world. And so one part of that is that they were creating a new economic system. And that's why one reason they took a vow of poverty. They don't own anything for themselves, but they came, became really the first international bankers. And so you could deposit money, gold, whatever, with uh, Knights Templar in one city, and then you get a note, and you could then get it out mm-hmm. in another city in Europe or after they moved into the Holy Land. This is highly helpful when you got brigands on all the pathways who are trying to rob you of all your gold. If you can distribute it to the Knights Templar who had armor and swords, which were effectively uh, the power that would allow them to protect themselves and then just have the note. Exactly. And then you could, you know. And so they were creating a type of new economic system to be able to fund people doing spiritual activity, people Mm -hmm. being able to manifest good things in the world, but they didn't take any of it for themselves. So again, they had a vow of poverty. So they're not doing it to enrich themselves. And it was really trying to create a basis for a kind of banking that's not based on usurious charges of interest, which then became a huge control mechanism for... Empire took it over. Yeah, Empire took it over, and now banking is like one of the major levers. It's how you control the money system. But they were trying to create something on a completely different level with, with money being understood as one of the great levers of power and to be able to manifest spirit on the earth itself. Now, what happened, unfortunately, is that they, all kinds of things happened. And did the, they, but I, I feel like they had something to do with the Grail tradition. They absolutely did. So they considered themselves to be Knights of the Grail. They considered themselves to be completely dedicated to the Christ impulse to spiritualize the planet and to develop the world to a higher level. Uh-huh. But they weren't afraid of getting into a fight. So they became one of like the elite units in the Crusades. Man, the if Holy they just world. had a little more sex, I think I might have been a nice Templar. <laughs> You'd have been into it. Yeah, I'd have absolutely. been into it. Because I'm yeah. like, I'm with them. I'm with them. I like fighting. I like all this, all these ideas. And yeah. it yeah. actually reminds me of what's this this movement for decentralized currency and cryptocurrency, which is obviously now contesting against central bank digital currency, which is Empire's version of controlled currency. Yes, versus exactly democratized and decentralized currency. Yes. So it's almost like those who are fighting for these, you know, crypto and decentralized currency are the new Knights Templar in a way. It, it really is a kind of new Templar impulse, trying right. to wrest back all the power in economics to people using it spiritually in the world rather than the current control structure. And unfortunately, of course, as everybody knows what happens to the Knights Templars, they were destroyed by the Catholic Church. Empire got them. The empire got them. Uh, the Pope was being controlled by the King of France at the time. Uh, or was, vice versa. Well, this is what was called the Babylonian captivity of the Pope. And he was actually being dominated by the, the French King. And so he got the Pope to declare the Knights Templar to be heretics so that he could seize all the gold and all the money mm. that the Knights Templar had. 
And that's what happened. So they said that, you know, they're heretics, they're devil worshipers, they're having sex, all this mm-hmm. type of stuff. Anything that in the Catholic world would be considered to be bad, they threw at the Knights Templar. They murdered huge numbers of the Knights. They seized all of their holdings. And, and that was the end of the Knights Templar. But it was understood there was a spiritual impulse behind it. And so, for example, in the Masonic tradition, there's like a particular grade out of the 33 steps that's considered to be like the, the Knights Templar grade. And there's other Knights Templar imagery within, within the Masons. But essentially, it was one particular type of warrior monk group yep. that came together to try to do good spiritual things in the world. And like you say, empire got them. But the, the whole beauty of the thing is that even if you kill them all, they will all come back in the next incarnation. Sorry about it. <laughs> that, that, that's we're our. We're going to keep coming. And that's we're gonna our keep coming, and we're going to keep coming. You can kill us this time around, yeah. but you're going to die off in this incarnation. You're not going to live forever, and we're going to come back. Yeah, and we're going to come back with even more determination. Now, this is and also more experience, exactly. Yeah. And this is also connected to what you're saying about you know you'd like to be a Knights Templar, except for the the celibacy yeah. part of it. But there is an idea within spiritual. Maybe I was like the icky you sojourn. Of the Knights Templar, right? And I was like, y'all, it's even better if we do all this and have sex. And they're like, you're crazy, bro. And I'm like, but do you see what I'm doing here? I'm fighting better than y'all. Yeah, I'm fucking better than y'all. Like, it's all getting better. Maybe, maybe that. Maybe, maybe now I'm seeing a pathway where in a previous incarnation. Well, there's also a particular principle involved here that in many spiritual traditions, they would give something up for a certain period of time because it gives you magical powers in that thing later to have given it up for a period of time because that's when you fully experience the loss of it and you fully experience it when you get it back, the true power of it. Mm-hmm. So it's like for, fasting. Exactly. You fast for, you know, you go on a, I remember I've been on like five day fast where it's just like, and usually like juice or salt water or something like that. I don't go for the full intense dry fast vision quest version. But I remember like the first time I did one of those and I had a cashew. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God. Yes. A raw cashew. <laughs> what a gift from Gaia, the heavens. I was like chewing it slowly. Like this yeah. is incredible. Whereas, you know, you've been eating a bunch and you're kind of full. It's the end of the meal. I'll grab a handful of those fuckers and just chomp them down and be like, ah, cashews. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's a totally different thing. So I definitely, when you have the absence, also I did a a darkness retreat experience. Absolute black for six days. And the way that you appreciate light and your sight and the ability to see after you've been in complete darkness is is astounding. And is Mm -hmm. one of these tools to actually help spring you into the proper gratitude and right relation to yes. the gifts of this amazing world. And to help activate the pineal and pituitary from yes, the, indeed. The, the darkness. Another example of this is the vow of silence. So it's like some medieval monks would take a vow of silence because by doing so, they became hyper aware of speech. And the idea was that they would incarnate at a later time with a magical power of speech, mm-hmm. abilities to speak higher than the average person because they gave it up. So for a person that went through a period of celibacy, now this may be interpreted at that time, like in the Catholic Church in a different way, but the real spiritual principle behind it was by giving it up, you then, when you get it back later, understand it in a completely different way that you can do much more with it than you could before when you kind of took it for granted. 
So as you're describing this, it seems like this idea of the continuity of your soul yeah, and that your life includes your death and the future reincarnation of your life had to be present because if you're going to take a lifelong vow of silence for a later incarnation gift, you have to have this rock solid belief that, of this continuity of your life, which also gives you immense courage. It's like, yeah, yeah, kill me now. All right. You know, yes, you know, good for you, but I'll be fucking back. Yeah, I'll be, you know, the content, you're not going to be able to kill my actual life essence, my soul essence. I'm going to continue to evolve and continue to return. It's interesting that every major spiritual tradition in the world throughout history has always believed in reincarnation, except for the three monotheistic traditions in their external form, right? Their esoteric versions always have believed in reincarnation. So Christianity, Judaism, and Islam in their esoteric forms already have in, incorporated an understanding of Sufism, reincarnation. Gnosticism, exactly. Kabbalism. Yeah. Exactly. So if you read the documents from the first few Christian centuries before the Catholic Church brought in their dogma, in the first few centuries, writers like Origen from Alexandria, Egypt, he wrote an incredible book called On First Principles, about what is the nature of the Christ being, what's the nature of a human being. And one thing he talked about was the transmigration of souls. Reincarnation was a Christian doctrine for the first few Christian centuries until the Catholic Church got a hold of it. It was absolutely present in all the early documents. And in Judaism, there was a book written by a, a Jewish rabbi called Beyond the Ashes of this Kabbalistic rabbi finding the current reincarnations. Do you have his name? Um... I know we can look up the, the name Beyond of the Beyond the Ashes. Yes. Name forthcoming. Yes. So he talks about in the book that he f sought out the current reincarnations of Jews who died in the Holocaust. And in many cases, they weren't currently incarnated as Jews. They had incarnated in other, other groups. But he, was, he sought them out in their current incarnations. And so we can find all these indications of reincarnation being understood at the highest levels of the Western tradition, as well as every other tradition around mm. the world. And again, that is one of the most important steps, I believe, for the key questions of human life. Who am I? Why am I here? What have I chosen to do in this current incarnation? To where we move beyond what is sometimes referred to as our present personality. I think I'm Robert Gilbert. I think that I incarnated in South Carolina and this particular Scottish background or whatever it is. But the permanent personality is much more than that. Right. We're beyond just our current gender incarnation. We're beyond the current racial incarnation, the current culture, something much bigger. And this is sometimes referred to as developing the vision of the eagle. The vision of the eagle mm -hmm. is that if we look at the stream of time, if you stand at a stream of water, all you can see is that present moment, that the place on the stream that you're standing right then. But an eagle can rise above the river of time and see it from the beginning to the end of the complete river. And that's a major part of initiation in all classical traditions, mm -hmm. to develop the vision of the eagle to see not only earth incarnation from the beginning to the end, but our personal incarnations, so that we understand ourselves based on the permanent personality with all the incarnations together as one, rather than just the present personality. And that opens up a lot more potential for higher consciousness and all kinds of activities. Yeah, absolutely. And it does an amazing thing with fear. If fear is yeah. the contractive force in the universe that actually 
keeps the flower, all all the flowers, all the seven roses of the yes. Rosicrucians. Fear is what actually contracts them and slows yes. down their spin and, and keeps them clogged and blocked and distorted, right? Yes. The this continuity of our of our of of the self actually starts to loosen the grip on all of these on all of these fears so that you're actually really free to start to flourish because the the temporal fears of this one finite incarnation then are extended into a longer strand so that actually your deeds your lessons everything that you've learned everything that you've evolved in your own life will carry forward with you yes into all lives you know all lives going beyond this one and once we understand that not only does it change everything in our current lifetime knowing that we are more than just our present incarnation as part of a much larger thread it also allows us to understand what they were doing in some of the earlier traditions with some of their very advanced spiritual practices and using things like sacred geometry that there'd be certain patterns that you could activate in your energy field or you could stabilize in your energy field that help you to hold on to the, the siddhas, the gifts, the knowledge from the previous incarnation in the next incarnation. And so this is like one of the hidden aspects of what's referred to as the tree of life in the Jewish Kabbalistic mm-hmm. tradition, that in, in ancient Egypt and among the Essenes and in other traditions, they understood that this was actually a form to be constructed in energy in the human physical body because once you are able to structure the energy and consciousness in the body, then when you leave the physical body, it is a structure that can help to hold that content right. as you move to the next incarnation. Right. And until you understand this about reincarnation, you don't really get why they're doing these practices the way they are because they understand that everything is a pattern and it's like biohacking at its highest level, like a spiritual biohacking. Mm-hmm. Once you understand how to create the right pattern, that pattern is what creates a specific result. And that's the, the language beauti- of sacred I mean, it's geometry. It's beautiful to think of it in that way because you're, you're like reinforcing and reifying a pattern that exists beyond, beyond yes. the locality of the body. And you're saying like, I am this pattern. And if I strengthen all of the energy centers of this pattern, I will be a being that is then that can carry forward and all of the information can be coded and kind of and distributed in a way in, into this pattern that strengthens the pattern and the geometry of it. Yes. And then when that geometry comes into a new form, it will still be intact. And then the form will then you know acclimate to the pattern that's already been established. Absolutely. You know, one of the great examples of this in modern times is a Greek Christian hermetic initiate, uh, Stylianus Ateslis, who was known to the public as Daskalos. And Daskalos was a Greek initiate in, who became known to the public in the 1980s uh, when a book was written about him by a professor from the University of Maine. But he had incredible abilities. Uh, Daskalos was known for his ability to dematerialize parts of people's bodies that he was working on and rematerialize that body part in a completely healed form. He was known for being able to read, write, and speak every ancient language he knew in previous incarnations. Mm -hmm. He could do fully conscious out-of-body travel, and from an out-of-body state, he could rematerialize an etheric hand to manipulate physical objects from an out-of-body state. 
the kind of very advanced things we normally associate with some Eastern initiates. Because these Western initiates that have these powers don't like to be known publicly. There's no, there's no structure to contain them in the Western world the way that they exist in things like India. And, and there's swords come, <laughs> or guns that come for them. Exactly. When you expo- that's, the, that's the interesting thing about the Eastern and the Western traditions. A lot of these Eastern traditions, you could be a guru. Yeah. And you don't get killed. <laughs> That's right. There's a structure for it in the society. Yeah, it's like, oh, cool. Yeah. You're a guru. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. You know, like, awesome. You, you want this temple? It's yeah. amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Just sit there and, you know, eat fruit and throw it at people, whatever you want to do. Yeah. You know, which you're talking about Maharaji there, just like gave snacks to everybody and did magical things. Yeah. You know, but you become a, a messianic figure in the Western tradition and it's like, here come the spears. Here come yep. the arrows. Yeah. There's, Didn't there, have a container for it. Exactly. And so... Didn't have a story for it. The story it, is the container. That's right. And so Daskalos, you know, he had these incredible abilities and people would ask him, how did you develop these abilities? And he said, I didn't develop them in this lifetime. I, I developed them through what I learned to do in the Egyptian temples thousands of years ago. And he described the way that it was the Egyptian precursor to what later the Jewish Kabbalistic tradition called the Tree of Life, and at that time was referred to as the symbol of life, was constructed in the human energy field. He said, because I was able to create this to such a degree in the Egyptian initiations, I don't lose my my knowledge of my previous incarnations. That's mm-hmm. why I remember all the old languages, and right. I remember who around me was, who they were to me in a previous incarnation. He doesn't lose the knowledge. He doesn't lose the abilities. So, when we see it from that perspective, some of these very esoteric practices of building these structures in the energy field make a lot more sense. And they also show us how we in our present incarnation can do things that will lead to better conditions in our next incarnations. And so that's something I think is very important because today, particularly with psychotropic culture, people are getting more and more interested in sacred geometry because what it is... you see it? Yeah, you, you, <laughs> yeah. Do, you directly perceive it, right? Right. And you get all this beautiful psychotropic art that's happening today of people like in their DMT experience or whatever. This is what I'm seeing. But these are patterns that often you can find from ancient cultures. They were perceiving it too because this is the angelic language. This is the thought forms from the mind of God that is the structural basis of everything and physical existence. Mm. And so there's a reason why we have this psychotropic renaissance right now. There's a reason why this is connected to the sacred geometry. And again, it all brings us back to spiritual science and to spiritual initiation in its current form that we're developing now in a very dynamic way at the present moment. Yeah. So when you were describing Daskalos, it reminded me a bit of my friend Matthias De Stefano. Are you familiar with Matthias De Stefano? Yes. Yeah. I All haven't right. met him, but I know of him. Oh, from well, you got to meet him. Yes. We'll make that happen. Yes. That's wonderful. Like, that must happen. Yes. Because he remembers his past incarnations and remembers the wisdom and technologies that he was accessing during those times. Yes. And it's, you know, it's, it's very interesting. He's become a good friend. And oftentimes he has one of those phones that has like a little stylus where you write notes with the, with the stylus. Yes. And he'll be writing in Atlantean. Just because that's his, that's like his home language. Yes, you know, yes. Because he, his primary incarnation that it was the source point was in the civilization of Kem, and so he has songs that he would sing, and he had, and he has, and it, you'll just see him scribbling in notes and be like, "What the fuck is that?" And he's like, "Oh, it's Atlantean. I'm just making notes for myself." <laughs> you know, and and he's able to do. I just spent you know uh, 
10 days in Egypt with him and just Wonderful. seeing the absolutely ridiculous things that he was able to do and the technologies he was able to do with different geometrical patterns. Like mm. he had me and my wife in the center of a circle and then he had three men and three women forming this kind of Merkaba form, mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. six-pointed star, which was actually representative of a multi, you know, a Merkaba instead yes. of just a flat star. And yes. then the masculine and feminine polarities. And then he had them spin. And then he had two, like, basically like electrons moving over masculine and feminine circling in the opposite direction. And he created this portal, which awakened this massive explosion of my own heart center in a temple in Egypt. And it was... Because he remembers these technologies yes. that, that are Beautiful. that are capable, and but what was in, what's interesting is he also remembers that one of the ways, some of the ways they used to be able to move some of the megalithic stones was form like enter into sympathetic resonance with the stone, change the vibration of self, because and then in resonance with the stone, change the vibration of the stone change the actual physical weight of the stones so the stones could be easily moved, you know, because they weren't as heavy because Mm -hmm. you were actually Mm -hmm. changing the weight. So this is a type of, you know, manipulation of the physical world that Daskalos seemed to be able to keep intact. And then when I Mm -hmm. talked to Matias about those powers, like, well, why can't you do it now? He refers to the necessity of a field of belief that allows for that possibility that actually the collective belief if the collective belief does not allow for that possibility the single person's belief that they're able to do that will be kind of butting up against the collective belief field so mm-hmm. that's why some of these things that were very not only possible but regular mm-hmm. in times past are now no longer available Daskalos seemed to be able to either have such a strong belief field that he was able to generate that he was actually able to do some of these things that were known and done in previous times in this incarnation. And so it seems like he had a particularly powerful ability. And, there, and there's other examples of people who have, yeah. you know, had these abilities. Well, that, no, I think one of the key concepts here is about structuring the subtle body. Now, for me, this is like the million-dollar idea that we hardly hear about anymore in metaphysical circles, that our subtle body is structured by every thought that we have, every emotion we have, every action we take. All of those things create particular types of energy emanations, particular vibrations, and they allow the subtle body to take on certain structures, for better or for worse. And so... The ability to work consciously with structuring the subtle bodies for some of the people to the level of a daskalos, they've got it structured to the level they can still do some of these things. But to back up your point, daskalos himself said there were things that he could do in the Egyptian times that he cannot do now Mm -hmm. because he said the conditions on the earth have changed. So Mm -hmm. they become much more dense on the earth than they were previously. And he talked about the way that the, the vibrational forces, the etheric life forces on the earth have become more densified. And it's it's even for advanced initiates, it's a bit harder to do some of these miraculous levitation right. of stones, things and such, that they could have done much more readily 5,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so I think that this can be tied into the idea about the belief field in that if we think of everything as being a vibrational resonator, every human being with the thoughts they're generating, the emotions they're generating, is emanating like a radio wave tower all the time. 
and helping to construct the vibrational field in the world around us, that that is affecting the the etheric field of the earth itself right. and can make some of these things easier or more difficult. One of the great concepts I want to throw into this from my teacher in Egypt, Dr. Ibrahim Karim, the founder of biogeometry, is this idea that in the ancient traditions, they talked about creating a new golden age. And this is not an abstract metaphor. We literally can create a new golden age because one of the energies we work with in biogeometry is something that's referred to as the higher harmonic of gold. So when you see these religious paintings of a gold field around the head or the entire body of an initiate. A halo. Yes. It's it's not a metaphor. It's a literal energy emanation of a gold quality. And so this is part of an alchemical transformation process. And so we can bring the energy fields of the earth up to this gold emanation and literally create a new golden age based on these principles. So through the structuring of our own subtle bodies, and the development of the raising of our consciousness and energetic potential. It affects the world around us. And I think this is, again, another one of those tricks where people tried to reduce alchemy to a bunch of scientific kooks in the basement (laughs) trying to turn actual lead into actual gold. Right. When actually, maybe that could have been possible, but the the first requisite kind of process for the initiate was to turn their own etheric lead yes into etheric gold absolutely so that they were vibrating at the frequency of gold and then the very best of those adepts yes and masters could potentially manipulate base of lead in the physical density into actual gold but that's like that that's like a the hypothetical masters in trick. And at that point, when they're already radiating gold energy, they probably don't even care that much about gold. So that's that's, that's right. You know what I mean? So you almost have to get to the point where you don't care about gold if you're going to make gold out of lead. Yes. You know, so like we have it all backwards, but we, we tried to reduce it to this thing Yes. And, and a lot of people probably fell for that path. Like, oh, I want to make gold out oh, of mercury yes. or lead or something like that. Rudolf Steiner in the Rosicrucian tradition has a great term for this. He calls it occult materialism. And <laughs> yeah. it's like, yeah, you deal with something that's really be a spiritual principle, but you know, we get so materialistic. It's like, oh, well, can I make physical gold out of it and make a bunch of money? And uh, again, my Egyptian teacher, Dr. Kareem, says that this uh, the story of Midas is like the cautionary tale about this. You know, he followed the wrong path, trying to make the physical gold, but then in the end, he couldn't eat anything, and he died because everything. Yeah, he, he turned gold. the real gold of life into lead. E- exactly. You know, and so one of the things, though, like there's a a practice that we talk about in Egyptian biogeometry. Now, we use a variety of energetic tools in Egyptian biogeometry that were designed by Dr. Kareem and are made in Egypt to detect the different energy qualities like higher harmonic of gold. But a very simple example of how it could be done is that you can take a sample of actual physical gold in one hand. And because physical gold is a crystallization or condensation of the etheric gold energy. So it becomes a sample of that energy. So you hold a sample of physical gold in one hand, take a pendulum in another hand, and connect energetically the two together. And then if you put the pendulum into a back-and-forth search position over a person's energy field, you might only get a very slight pull. But if the person goes into 
deep, authentic blessing or prayer, you'll see the pendulum start rotating very quickly because it's connected to that gold energy of what's Mm. being held in the other hand because the person is literally emanating this gold energy from their energy field when they're in a state of of true blessing, true prayer, uh, or a state of unconditional love. All right, so let me go. So this seems like a a very pragmatic for those fellow occultists who are listening. It seems like a very pragmatic process here. So you got gold gold in one hand. Maybe it's a coin, maybe it's a bar, maybe it's a piece of jewelry that's made out of gold, whatever. Yes. You got gold in one hand and then you have a pendulum. And I know that Ibrahim Karimi has his own, you know, particularly sacred geometry pendants that he uses for this, which is probably the highest level that you can do. And, and I don't necessarily want to go into that rabbit hole, but we can. Okay. But pendulum. Yeah. And, and I'm, because I'm assuming it works with other pendulums as well. That For this process does not require a specialized biogeometry pendulum. It can be a, a fishing weight on the end of a string. Correct. Simply an oscillating. Right. All right. So you're, you're then basically creating, as I use the term, sympathetic resonance with exactly. from the gold to the pendulum. Yes. So that the pendulum is detecting gold frequency. Exactly. Is that right? And then you're moving it up and down the energy centers of the body and seeing where there is strong gold energy. That can be done, although that's a different practice than the one I was just describing. Okay. The one I was just describing, when we're in the state of blessing, prayer, unconditional love, it gets eman- the gold energy is emanated from the entire body, the entire energy field. So what are you using the pendulum for? The pendulum allows you to see the movement connected to if that energy is present or absent. So, for example... But that sounds like a diagnostic. uh, If you want to call it that, but it's basically detecting the presence or the absence of a specific vibrational quality. That sounds like a diagnostic. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Right, because you're detecting whether it's the gold, the emanation of the gold energy is... Is present or absent. Or or present or absent, or to, to the degree at which it's present. And at that point, in this very simple analog method, we have much more advanced methods in biogeometry, but this is just to describe something very simple. Then you'll actually get an increase of the rate of rotation and the amplitude of the swing as the amount of that higher harmonic of gold energy increases. Right. So if you test any place that's called a power spot on Earth Mm -hmm. in this method, you'll find it has that strong higher harmonic of gold energy. It's a power spot. If you test any of the chakras in the human body, it'll have a certain amount of this. But what we do with our our thoughts and our emotions, etc., can determine whether or not we are constantly emanating this higher harmonic of gold into our environment that then becomes part of the general mm-hmm. mix in the environment around us, or whether we're actually generating other vibrational qualities that are sometimes quite toxic or t- quite harmful. All right, so let's say... There's somebody on a bodywork table. Yes. Gold in one hand. Yeah. I got a pendulum in another. Yeah. And I'm finding, let's say, the mind, you know, the mind, the third eye, the third eye energy. So, ooh, wow. A lot of gold, beautiful thoughts coming out of here, right? Yeah. Strong energy. All right. And then I'm moving down to the sacral chakra, for example. Okay. Right? Yeah. You know, that, that sexual energy, that power source. And I'm like, ooh, wow. Not a lot of gold energy circulating from this point. So that to me would mean that like, all right, so now what do I do? Is there something that I can do with the pendulum and with my, with my intent? And I'm using me as a surrogate, as just an avatar for any practitioner who wants to practice this. So let's say you determine like, all right, this is feeling pretty good. You may actually feel that the whole field 
is absent of gold energy, which at that point, there's something to elevate the whole field. But let's yes. say you find an imbalance, like strong mind, low, you know, sexual energy center. Yes. So there's many different ways around it. Any type of vibrational input into the weak center could be used all kinds of different methods to do it. It could be essential oils, you know, it could be uh, various types of natural plant substances. It could be some any number of things. Some type of Reiki, some type of intentionality. Ener energy medicine. Of, and, yeah. and in classical traditions, there's a very interesting aspect of this working in the human energy field. That just like we talk about seven chakras, there's a, a hidden pattern in a lot of classical teachings. So for example, in the Jewish Kabbalistic tradition, the original Hebrew alphabet is 22 letters. And in the classic work, Sefir Yetzirah, the Book of Formation, it says those 22 letters break up into three sets. There are three mother letters, seven double letters, and 12 elemental letters. Now, the hidden part of that coding is that there are three major energy centers in the human body for our, our astral body or our consciousness work. There's seven major centers in the etheric life body that we think of as the chakras. There's 12 levels of differentiation within the physical body that you see in these medieval diagrams. But sticking with the three for the moment, there's three major energy centers in the body that it's understood in many traditions, but one of the clearest descriptions is in the Chinese tradition. So in Chinese medicine, they talk about the upper elixir field. Upper elixir field is around the consciousness in the head. And certain alchemy happens here. Then there's the middle elixir field that happens around the chest and the heart. Then there's the lower dantian or lower elixir field, and mm -hmm. that's in the lower abdomen areas. And so, and for those of you who don't know, the dantian is like uh, I don't know, roughly an inch below the belly button, and it's it's kind of like deep. If you do body work, you can yes. find that spot, and yes. it's like a, it's like the almost like the center of centers in a, in a way. Yes, there's another center in the heart, but there's the dantian is a very much like a center of incarnation. In the, it's in the, the center of balance for the physical body. Right, for the physical in, body. In Chinese medicine. And it's really fascinating, again, to know that Dan Tian means elixir field. So this is where we do internal alchemy. And so if a person was to have, let's say, a weakness in the sacral chakra, then it's possible to develop the thought forms from the upper Dan Tian that have that higher harmonic of gold energy and the opening of the heart chakra to develop a lot more of that gold energy and to direct that to the sacral chakra as a way of working together with the three mm -hmm. elixir fields. Right. That would be one internal alchemy method. We could also have external alchemy where, again, you're using energy medicine from the outside or essential oils or mm -hmm. plants or whatever it is to bring the vibrational force to that center. So it can be generated inside the human being to develop our own forces and to direct them to the place needed in the body or from an external source coming in. But with that, it's all, it'd be a question then with our discussion of higher harmonic of gold to be able to increase that higher harmonic of gold. Now that's increasing the alchemical potential of that center because many people, their sexuality is not full of alchemical potential. There's all kinds of neuroses or blockages or all kinds of things. Their understanding of it, their relationship to it may not be a purely healthy one. Right. But if they can understand it in the deeper form, where literally the higher harmonic of gold is the vibrational signature, it's the vibrational resonance with the divine plane, with the state of unity, the state of oneness, that's simply being expressed by the gold field. It shows the connection to that unity stage. And so if that becomes very strong in the sacral chakra, that greatly 
increases the ability of the person to attain the unity merging tantric goal mm. of sexual activity because so much gold is contained in that chakra. And again, the more in the whole body, the better, because the whole yeah. body should become a tantric instrument and all of the five senses become tantric forms to work with sight yeah. and smell. Yeah. Uh, would it be good to have a gold pendulum if you could? You could, but it's not absolutely necessary, necessary. because you can get the same result with particular types of shapes or certain types of number sequences. Mm -hmm. So Egyptian biogeometry, again, from my friend, Dr. Kareem in Egypt, is sometimes referred to as nature's design language. What's the patterns that everything is, is created on? Nature's design language of shape, sound, color, motion, angle, proportion. Every one of those things is its own quality scale. So there are people that are, are healers with light and color. And so a particular color will have an effect on the human energy field that's different from a different color. Some people are sound healers, and one sound will have a different effect on the field than a different sound. Yeah, I wish my wife was here. She would, uh... oh, there she is. <laughs> she is here. <laughs> <laughs> there she is, sound healer. Exactly. So she knows exactly what we're talking about. <laughs> so, so with the biogeometry, we can also create this with geometric shapes. And also with, again, things like number sequences. So putting together the correct shapes and the correct numerical sequences can, can create the same vibrational quality as actual physical gold could. Mm -hmm. And that, again, is part of the steeper mysteries of ancient Egypt and yeah. the alchemical work of all traditions. I'm making a gold pendulum. Oh, yeah, it's, it's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. I'll say that Dr. Kareem himself has a particular pendulum that he created to have the shapes that resonate with the seven planes of nature, yeah. the seven yeah, spiritual planes, made out of pure gold. That's yeah. pretty dope. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's, yeah. A, that's nice. pretty dope. That's, yeah. a, that's a power tool. Yeah. All right, so this is, you know, this is really illuminating part of this process of going through and healing both yourself and other, you know, other people if you're in in that in the process of because actually once you see other people as just different emanations of the self yes you know then the actual desire to heal self collectively yes grows stronger so we're starting to understand that i i saw in one of the you know one of the videos that you produced which excellent excellent work that you're putting out there and i Thank just you. encourage everybody to devour you know a lot of the content that you have out there um there was basically uh, something likened to the Hippocratic Oath, which has been obviously very much abused, which is do no harm. Mm -hmm. You know, as you develop this, so in these orders of understanding, there was always this idea, like, as you develop these powers, do not use these powers for your own selfish gain at the detriment to others. Yes, right? and that absolutely. Was like a, that was like the the unbreakable principle of working with this kind of being a light worker, basically. It's one of the core principles of the Rosicrucian tradition, which is that all the powers, all the siddhas, all the knowledge, all the abilities that we get on the path are to be put to the service of other people. It's an absolute foundation of the path. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> so there's all of this that's happening in in the physical body, in our 3D, in our, in our life. We've talked about some of the history. We've talked about empire. We've talked about the slaughter of different orders. We've talked about the discovery. We've talked about physical gold. We've talked about all these things. 
But there's, let's talk about the way that the Rosicrucians, the Gnostics understood, and potentially even the Zoroastrians understood the non-physical dimensions. And you talked about three particular beings Mm -hmm. that I would really like to illuminate you know, for, for the audience and also for myself and the beings being Lucifer, Satan, who is related to Set, which was, I thought was very interesting, which mm-hmm. is an Egyptian God who, uh, cut Osiris into a bunch of different pieces. <laughs> yes. that's, that's also yeah. an interesting myth. And then, um, Aruman, which is. Well, Aruman and Satan are the same. They're different names for the same being from different traditions. And the third uh-huh. is actually, uh, the Christ in the Rosicrucian tradition. Got it. Yeah. So Araman and Satan are just different names for the same. Yes. And set are, so Araman set Satan. Yes. But isn't, isn't it from like, from this kind of understanding of an egregore, basically like, mm-hmm. like a thought form actually yeah. condensing a, a reality in the non-physical, like the more you actually worship a being with a particular quality, would there not be a little bit of disambiguation between these entities based upon what has been placed upon the names themselves, even if they come from a similar origin? Yes, that's a very good, deeper aspect of this whole thing. So let's start with uh, the fundamentals of it. Yeah. So if we start at the divine plane, everything is one. It's all a unity. Uh, it's the source light. Then as you move to the spiritual plane, things begin to d- differentiate out into different high-level beings that have specific qualities or powers from the Godhead, like Shiva and Shakti as the initial Mm -hmm. power split. Shiva is holding the divine center at all times, but it's the Shakti that creates everything. It's the Mm -hmm. divine feminine that's moving around that center all the time. So they all have a particular principle involved with them. So another polarized principle is the one of the complete range or gamut from completely spiritualized to completely materialistic. And so these things at the highest divine plane level is a thought form in the mind of God that as that thought form then begins to manifest out going toward physical crystallization as its final stage, at its spiritual plane level, it will become embodied with a tendency of certain beings. Certain beings are going to be very attracted to the process of materializing things into physical matter. Mm -hmm. That's like the demiurge we talked about before with the Gnostics. Other beings are not going to want to deal much with the physical plane, and they're going to want to keep very non-physical and very spiritual. Now, as that affects human beings, that can be two opposite influences on us that we can become aware of from different types of spiritual beings that we encounter. So for the one extreme, spiritual beings that are extremely spiritualized, much more advanced than we are, but don't fully understand the purpose of the physical plane, and just try to get us to have constant ecstatic processes and get off the physical plane and not reincarnate and that sort of thing, that's toward a particular aspect of spiritual light that Mm -hmm. became known in the earlier Western traditions as Lucifer or light bearer. These beings don't necessarily intend harm, but they, not wanting to deal with the physical manifestation muck down there as they see it, They're trying to, they see human beings as like innocent children being thrown in a slaughterhouse going into the physical world. So, Mm -hmm. hey, get off the cycle of karma and reincarnation and come back to the spiritual world. This is your real home. 
And so these beings were referred to again as Lucifer, a light bearer. I mean, when you're saying referred to as Lucifer, like who's referring to the, because Lucifer has not been referred to like that by most people. Well, we're talking about what's the, the deeper aspect behind it that then came into terminology in the Hebrew tradition and the Greek tradition that then became known in the Western tradition as Lucifer. Uh-huh. It moved through these stages. But that was at the, some point it got corrupted dramatically and then actually well, it conflated got, with Satan. It, and, they didn't can even tell the difference between the two. But it, but the keep trying to keep it as simple as possible. Uh, this is like one extreme. And I'm going to keep trying to keep it as complicated as possible. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, so we'll be in a good we'll be okay. in a good tension here. But exactly. <laughs> yes. Between the two of us, we'll always hit the center. <laughs> yeah. So with the uh, Luciferic beings they influence human beings in a way that does pull people towards spiritual activity. And we should never think of something like, oh, those bad people over there are influenced by Lucifer, not me. We're all influenced by these beings all the time. And so... You talked about us having a permeable spiritual membrane. Oh, absolutely. Where all these beings are actually available at all different times. They're moving through us all the time. Yeah. And so... These Luciferic beings, though, their influence towards spirituality is that the light can be so bright that it blinds, whereas the opposite, the satanic or aramonic, is like complete darkness. But either one can lead to an inability to see. And so this tremendous light from the Luciferic beings can sometimes have the influence on people toward uh, illusory forms of spiritual development, things that are based on not true spiritual principles or upon wanting constant ecstatic process where a person becomes like a heroin addict or something like that because mm-hmm. they want to just be in this out-of-the-body, elevated state all the time. Mm-hmm. And of course, the physical body can't tolerate that. It doesn't work in the physical world to do that. But that's like a Luciferic influence. And the opposite of that... I mean, so, so as I'm imagining this, I'm also, you know, you would, I would have never made this correlation without understanding this this idea of a luciferic being but you imagine some of the monastic traditions as being highly luciferic basically like the all the asceticism exactly which is like deny the body deny the body spirit is the only thing that matters yes you know go seek the clear light everything else is bullshit all is maya like all of these you could see that as another form of luciferic influence as well as the kind of escapism from somebody who just wants to be in a ketamine journey all day, all the time. Yes. You know, where they're just experiencing, you know, the non-physical reality, disassociating from the flesh and getting stuck in that cycle. So you can see how there's a beauty to the impulse, but there's also a shadow to the impulse if we allow it to be too strong in relation to the field of the other beings yes. being Satan and Christ, if we want to use those terms, right? The three yeah. different types of beings. Again, that's the way it would be expressed in the Rosicrucian tradition. But the, the principles are universal. And so you're absolutely right that in a very ascetic approach, it's extremely Luciferic because it's kind of denying the body and denying the physical world. And we see that a lot in everybody's spirituality. There's a part of us that we're attracted to that Luciferic side. And it's not 100% bad. One of the difficulties of even talking about this in modern, uh, in the modern world... Christians get all mad. Well, the Christians have such a uh, superficial caricature of the reality of these beings that to talk about the reality of what Luciferic beings are and how they influence us can be quite difficult because I think once you use that name, they think they know what it is, but it's right. a caricature of what it really is. 
So we're influenced by these beings all the time, all these beings. It's a constant process, and we have to just dynamically balance it all the time. Let me, they, let me, all, they all have to be present. Let me draw, let me, let's stick with Lucifer for a moment. Yes. There's, I went through an interesting kind of thought process where <clears throat> I looked out and I saw the morning star. Yeah. Which is Venus. Yes. Which the morning star is also referred to as Lucifer. And so I made this correlation, mm-hmm. Lucifer, morning star, Venus, and then the demonization of sexuality. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. which a lot of people have Venus, which stands for Eros, basically. It's Aphrodite. Yes. It's, it's, and it's like, this is just the biggest fucking hoax that's ever been pulled. But I can also see that potentially there was a deeper truth in if someone was completely lost in the light that's available from Eros alone, mm-hmm. so that they could become this kind of like, like hedonistic, orgiastic, uh, in a way like bacchanal, like like the Luciferic impulse to actually transcend the and just merge with the light through the vehicle of sexuality could also be Luciferic. Yes, absolutely. Because if you had pure eros with no agape, without universal love to go with the eros, it could become unbalanced. Right. And so this is all a principle of balance. So everything is always, a, a, as a divine principle, you have two extremes, and then you have the perfect balance in the center. So the Luciferic aspect is pulling us towards spirituality. But if it becomes too extreme and unbalanced, it can become illusory forms of spirituality or addictive forms of living or things that pull us away from taking full advantage of physical incarnation and the nitty-gritty of physical life. The opposite side to that is going to be the forces that are actually involved, like I talked about with the Gnostics, with the Demiurge, with the process <clears throat> of crystallizing the higher energy patterns and consciousness patterns from the Godhead into physical reality, to literally make the physical plane. And again, that's how the Demiurge was understood. But long before Gnostic Christianity, we had the Zoroastrian tradition. So the Zoroastrian tradition uh, from Persia they were one of the first traditions in the world to give a name to this other extreme, the materialistic extreme. Because in ancient times of human history, people had more of a kind of effortless clairvoyance. They perceive spiritual realities much more easily than we do. We become much more condensed, become much more materialistic over time. So if you read ancient texts, people are just seeing spiritual beings everywhere. But now it's like an extraordinary thing if people do. So In ancient times, they didn't perceive this materialistic being's influence as much, but by the Zoroastrian era, they began to perceive it. So they refer to that being as Angramanu, or as Araman. And Araman is considered then, that's the archetype of the dark lord of the earth that the Gnostics talked about. This is the being that actually allows the physical plane to get crystallized. It's a group of beings. So we're moving away from Lucifer. So in the Zoroastrian tradition, do they even have a, an idea of Lucifer as we've described, or is that not they, really there? Not in as They may have more of a duality instead of a trilogy, right? In a sense, the, they had the aspect of what we would think of as, as the Christ being, which they called a Hura Mazdao, which means the being that I see in the sun, uh-huh. the being glimpsed in the aura of the sun. And Ahura Mazda was opposed by <clears throat> Araman. So they had the <clears throat> huge contribution that they brought forward. This understanding of the, the opposite being. But part of that is they didn't focus as much on the, the Luciferic side. 
because now, now we're bringing this new knowledge about this being, which hadn't been as present before. And so they talked about the Dark Lord of the Earth, Araman. And then as the Zoroastrian tradition uh, in time period moved into some of the Egyptian mysteries, then this being was referred to as Set. Now, they understood that the, the pharaoh, the initiate, had to be have their power activated or had to have certain dispensations from Set. So you'll see these images from ancient Egypt where Set, some, like on one side, Horus on the other side, they're like doing things to the energy field of, a, of the pharaoh or an initiate. Mm-hmm. So Set has to be involved with that because this is a being that's involved with living on the physical earth and the powers of the physical earth. So they, they never had a thing of like, we're just going to get rid of Set. You couldn't, you couldn't do that. It's an essential part of this world. But he is an opposition being. Again, he did dismember Osiris, and he is a being that is an opposition. Because if we were to give ourselves completely over to the Set impulse, we would be completely materialistic. We would lose all spiritual understanding, all spiritual perception. Our spiritual path would decay into something that would be fairly hard. Yeah, and even in the myth of Osiris, he cuts them into 12 pieces or yes. whatever, which is basically... 14, I think, yeah. 14, yeah. And the the idea of that, that is what the material world does, is it takes the, yes. takes the light, the clear, the light of source, and it cuts it into a bunch of different pieces. And then they couldn't find the phallus. And that yeah. becomes part of what ISIS ISIS has. kept yeah. it for a little while. Yes. I was playing around with it. That's, that's my theory. But we have to understand that in the Egyptian the first tradition, dildo was Osiris's <laughs> etheric cock. For the Egyptian tradition, you know, they, they would show very plainly, you know, a pharaoh or an initiate with an erection. You know, they wouldn't yeah. show that in the Catholic Church, but that was like a basic thing in ancient Egypt. Because same with is, Greek and Roman tradition. Yeah, right? there's and, a power principle. And so what it shows is that set can take away your power if you were to have too much of that influence. Mm-hmm. As you become completely materialistic, you'd lose your spiritual power. And so it's a bit of an opposition being, but not one that you got rid of because it has a place here and you have to even be empowered by that being is the way they looked at it. So when Moses led the Hebrews out of Egypt, and of course Moses was an initiate in the Egyptian temples, mm-hmm. he, he knew their practices. The concept of Set became, in Hebrew, Hasatan, meaning the adversary. And Hasatan became simplified to Satan in the later Christian tradition. Right. So Satan is that being of complete materialism. And what happened is because they tried to take the deeper teachings away from the public, and you have to go through the Catholic Church and things to access any spiritual knowledge or to connect to spirit, is they, they lost the differentiation for the public between Lucifer and Araman. And so they started talking about them like they're just the devil, like they're the opposition being. And they turned it into a simple polarity between Christ and the devil. The problem is, anytime you do that, you're going to create terrible destruction in people's understanding and in social processes on the earth. Because it's always the true principle is like what the Tibetans teach about Mm -hmm. the middle way the middle path, even in the Jewish Kabbalah, mm-hmm. on the tree of life, there's the two side pillars. One is Luciferic, one is Aramonic. And then the middle pillar is the only one that goes all the way up to Keter at the top and all the way down to Malkut at the bottom. Yeah. It's the only one that goes all the way up to all the way to heaven and earth. That's the the 
principle of the perfect balance between extremes. So we can't get rid of the extremes. What we do is we constantly dynamically balance those extremes. That's the path to health. You can't be too hot or too cold. You can't eat too much or too little. So it's a matter of the, the Tibetan middle path. Mm-hmm. And so when you reduce it to, in this case, Christ versus the devil, then anything you don't like in society is going to be of the devil. You don't like sexuality? Well, sexuality is from the devil. You can only have sex in the missionary position if you're going to have children or whatever. Everything gets put in that, that way. And then people start thinking subconsciously, whenever you've got two polarities, rather than both being essential and equally good and having to come into the right balance, they start thinking one is good and one is bad. Mm-hmm. Liberal or conservative, one is good, one is bad. Male or female, one is good, one is bad. And this leads to destruction. Yeah, it's a, it's a nightmare for the actual healthy structuring of our consciousness to have these polarities and these different energies with the value proposition of good and bad yeah. put in them rather than necessary components of a healthy system yes. of the yin and the yang, of this you know balanced polarity that requires both to exist. But when you put the value proposition of good and bad, it, it actually corrupts the mind in a way that you can no longer see the truth. Which is, and, and again, to go back to you know a, a Buddhist teaching from John Churchill I had on the podcast, he talked about the highest realization is being the place where the demon and the Buddha meet. Yes, you know. So they they yeah. started the practice of tanka worship, right? Like where it wasn't even worship; it was almost that they were evoking their own demonic and buddhic you know christ-like qualities and expressing them as in totality in full balance Mm -hmm. you know like that was actually what the what the higher initiates were actually attempting to do yes so it was understood in the initiation traditions that we're constantly being influenced by the luciferic beings that help pull us towards spirituality but we can't give ourselves completely over to them or things will get very unbalanced and that we're constantly being yeah, and, and it's a slippery slope into the shiny materialist spirituality, like the, oh, the yes. escapist spirituality, the what you know, Mark Gaffney would call pseudo eros, like these shine, the, like the false light almost. Yes. Like, here's a glimpse of it. Yes. Take a little more of this drug. Take a little, you know, shoot yes. up this heroin. Take this, you know, take this thing. Like you'll experience it. Give up all of your, you know, uh, everything. Or in the, even the darkest form, I suppose it could be. Give up this life. This life is bullshit. Yes, exactly. You know what I mean? So there's yes. there's ways in which that that light could be if it's out of balance. Absolutely. Again, so so really it seems that the the Rosicrucians had in some ways an even an evolution of the Zoroastrian, which was important because it, it created mm-hmm. things in balance and yes. the necessity of the tension between the balance. Yes which was also the Buddhist kind of concept of the tension between the balance yes. and also the Hindu Shiva Shakti. There's a lot of balance of, of a duality, but then adding the Trinity seemed, seems like it's even a, a more interesting and complex way to understand and structure our consciousness if our goal is balance. I actually think that uh, that understanding of the threefoldness of it, the two extremes and then the middle path in the center, is the essential today to heal our societal rifts Otherwise, we think one extreme is the right way and the other extreme is the wrong way. And people just tear each other up in society, if that's the idea, rather than understanding, bring it together in the center. Mm. So the... Is the Christ... Now, 
Let's talk about the Christ. Let's talk yes. about the Christ being and the Christ archetype. Yes. We've focused on the, the darker, the dark, well, quote, darker. The two extremes. The two extremes, yeah. Yeah. So the understanding then is that both these forces have to be present. Extreme spirituality, which can become unbalanced. Extreme materiality, which creates the physical plane, but we can't give ourselves over to it. And so something's going to hold the center. And so the sacred geometry image for this is going to be that Lucifer and Araman are their, their own particular extremes, are their own worlds. So the fundamental expression of an entity, of a thing, is in its perfect form as a circle or a sphere. So you have two spheres, and where they perfectly overlap creates an almond shape in the middle that's called the vesica Pisces. Mm-hmm. And so the vesica form shows two extremes either side, and where they overlap creates this perfect balance. So in the Masonic-built temples in Europe, you will see above the entryway into the cathedral the Christ inside of the vesica. They don't show you the other two circles, but they show you that Christ is holding the center in the vesica. But sometimes you'll see things like the Buddha in the center of a vesica Mm. in the Eastern traditions. So whatever their being is of a being that has spiritual wisdom or balance and knows how to balance these forces, that's what's held in the vesica in the sacred geometry form. And so it was understood in the Rosicrucian tradition that the Christ being and other beings of a similar nature, like at the archangelic level, it would be Archangel Michael, that these are beings that hold a balance between heaven and earth, between spirit and matter. And they can help us to unify these two things in a healthy way. Mm -hmm. And that's the foundation of mental health, emotional health, physical health, having a life on earth that leads to a great outcome or not. And so this was part of the understanding that the Christic process is to bring in the power of the being of the sun, the solar logos, in an alchemical process to bring it in, like was shown with uh, the iconography around Jesus. Jesus, when he's going through that process of bringing in the Christ, has the descent of the dove of the Holy Spirit coming down the central column and entering into the crown center in the classic Christian iconography. And so this is turning ourselves into a grail cup, allowing a being of a higher level that holds the balance to enter into us. Because the whole idea of the Christ is that this is a very high spiritual being, the being behind the sun. And this is meant quite literally, it's not a metaphor, that behind everything we see in physical reality, there are non-physical beings. So behind the sun, there's a great being. And we can bring that being into ourselves. Now this had been done for thousands of years previously in other spiritual traditions with what they called sun and moon alchemy, where they would bring in solar and lunar forces into their own body for Mm -hmm. alchemical purposes. But this has a slightly different focus to it. So it was understood that uh, Jesus had the capacity as an advanced initiate to do this process of bringing the Christ being into his own sheaths in a very powerful, tangible way. And so this then creates the understanding of the Rosicrucian tradition that unbound spirituality is connected to the spiritual beings that we experience on the spiritual path that are unbalanced, that are referred to as the Luciferic beings. And then the materialistic impulse that we're constantly dealing with in our physical lives and spiritual lives related to the Aramonic beings. And then the being that holds the perfect balance in the center 
is the Christ being. Now, are you using the sun being and the luciferic being as somewhat interchangeable or no. is it separate? As separate. We have to understand that in the, that when they understood the nature of this being in the Zoroastrian tradition, they referred to him as Ahura Mazdal, the spiritual being seen in the aura of the sun. A person who had clairvoyance could actually perceive the sun being. Uh, and yeah. and that, that was Ahura Mazdal. So this is like a later understanding of the same principle. They right. refer to them as the solar logos. So the solar logos then becomes the, Chris, the, the Christ being in Christian understanding, but really the same as Ahura Mazdal and really connected to the sun beings understood in multiple traditions. But now with the development of the alchemical process that Jesus could do in bringing the Christ being into the physical seas of the body to transform consciousness, energy, everything else, the focus became there with the way that we understand Christ in the Rosicrucian tradition or in the Western tradition today. But as a complete system, then you have unbalanced spirituality, Lucifer, unbalanced materiality, with Araman and the Christ being holds the balance between the two as a spiritual being who incarnated into the physical plane, mm -hmm. which most of them don't do in the, to that level. So, so then the sun, as, as I'm trying to understand this, because mm -hmm. I'm seeing I'm seeing Christ in the center of the vesicle Pisces. Yes, I'm seeing, you know, Aruman and on one side, and what's the name of the light being in Zoroastrianism or Ahura Mazda. Ahura Mazda. Huh? Um, but in the in the Rosicrucian, it's you know, in the Rosicrucian, it's Satan and Lucifer, and then there's the cracks in between. They actually use the term Araman rather than Satan Araman, because it's right. so misunderstood today. The term right, okay. Satan, but, but yes, same thing. And and then there's the the light being of the sun, which seems like the it seems very much like the source light behind it all, almost it like the Tao that's it behind is. all yeah. of creation. It's the it's what. You know, my teacher Mark Gaffney would call Shekinah, you know, like the force of Eros that moves underneath everything else. And so he allows that to kind of pour through as he's holding the opposite. So it very much, it's kind of bringing all of these systems together in a way where that the, the, the Jesus as the point of the Trinity, you know, or Christ, I should say, is the yes. point of the Trinity. Jesus is the one who accessed the Christ. Yes, is is the balanced point in the center, the middle path that then allows because in, because of the balance of those two things, the pure, the light of the sun, the light of the source, Eros, Shekinah, you know, mm -hmm. the Tao, whatever, to move through and actually explode him into full or her into full potentiality. Because it was understood in all the ancient traditions that everything on the physical plane, including all the planetary forms had a spiritual being behind it. And so the source of all life in our solar system, all light, all heat, all life is the sun. So in the early Christian centuries, they were trying to figure out well, what is the nature of the Christ being. We have all of these older types of understandings of spiritual beings. What spiritual being is the Christ being? And so this was described in the early Christian centuries before the Catholic Church's dogma came in in the third century AD in Alexandria, Egypt, with a now known as a church father uh, named Origen. And Origen wrote in a book called On First Principles, he said the way to understand what the Christ being is, is that the Godhead is a being that is everything. It is literally the one source of everything. It contains everything inside of it. And this being is so vast, 
you can't really perceive it as a separate thing, mm-hmm. as an incarnated being, because it's everything. Mm-hmm. But what the Christ being is, is moving from the divine plane level to what they refer to as the macrocosmic level. It is the macrocosmic emanation of the Godhead mm-hmm. with all the qualities of the Godhead, but reduced in scale to where human beings can perceive and interact with this being. Atman is Brahman. They're the same, but they're different. It's like it's the local point of the collective field of God. It's very much the same thing in esoteric Christianity, that from the Godhead at the divine plane level, the macrocosmic emanation becomes the Christos, which then becomes the being that manifests physically as the sun in the solar system, because it's a macrocosmic being, not a microcosmic being. And then human beings are the microcosmic emanation of the Godhead. Mm -hmm. We have all the qualities of the Godhead, but at a smaller scale, at the microcosmic level. Mm -hmm. And that's why they developed the saying in esoteric Christianity of not I, but Christ in me, because we're moving from our microcosmic level mm-hmm. of an emanation of the Godhead to start bringing in more macrocosmic aspects. Yeah, being able to have the multidimensionality of the understanding, which creates paradox, <laughs> ultimately, because that's yes. also something you have to grapple with as you walk the path, is the paradox of physical three-dimensional reality. I got to go to work, I got to eat, I got to do this stuff. And then the yes. multidimensionality, the aspect of the angelic realms that don't require such things and <laughs> don't have to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. This is a, <clears throat> one of the things that's coming to mind is it seems as if actually with this understanding that we've explained today of the Luciferic beings, I think a lot of people associate Christ with actually what the Luciferic impulse is, which is like nothing matters but the light. Mm-hmm. And that's not what this model is saying about the Christ because it's also held in balance by Araman. Yes. Like ultimately, right? Like, so it's the combination of both. So it's not, it's not like form is ridiculous. Just go to the next life already. Be good so you get there. But actually, so there's been this interesting move where actually the way that Christ has been taught is taught as Lucifer in a way. This becomes a challenge in modern spirituality because without a clear understanding of the two polarities of the Luciferic and Aramonic, what happens is then people associate any being connected to light as being a Christic or a good, quote-unquote, being. And in our case, as good would be balanced. Uh, And that's not the way it is. We can be approached by all types of great beings of light that don't have a balanced energy to them that may be giving us counsel that is illusory and is not real. Mm. Because again, the blinding light blinds as surely as the complete darkness. Mm. And so it needs to be understood that we're, all of us, affected by the Luciferic and Aramonic beings at all times. Uh, We are like, human beings are like fish in water that don't know we're living in water. And that there's all these other invisible forces moving through the water all the time. And the water is the spiritual world around us. We're embedded in it. And these beings are constantly moving through our energy field and leaving traces of emotional impulses, thought forms, things of that kind, that we have to be clear enough to perceive that separated from what we ourselves are generating in our thought field and decide, do I want to go with that or with this? Mm -hmm. And as a person really opens up spiritual perception, this is where the rubber hits the road in real spiritual development. 
and you start perceiving non-physical beings and understanding the non-physical influences coming in without going off into some state of psychosis, it's got to be held in balance, that at that point, you can then differentiate where's this information and these impulses coming from, right. the different types of beings. So there's, it was understood classically, and then it got lost, that we go through certain stages. We start, the first stage is always mindfulness. It's simply to observe the content of our thoughts that we have, our emotions we have, our will impulses. Mindfulness is always the first stage so that we become self-aware. And being self-aware, we already start to clean up a lot of our garbage because once we see it, it's kind of horrific. Like, I can't believe I generated a thought form that negative about that person. Right. That's completely destructive. These are my agreements and fear. These are my, you know, yes. we start to become aware of, aware of actually what we're doing. So awareness is... Yes. And that's also something that John Churchill, again, the Mahayana Buddhist, he was talking about is that most people think, well, that's the end goal, you know, and, <laughs> and actually for, you know, it's, it is a, it is a momentous task to be, it is. to be aware and there's yeah. levels and levels and levels of awareness. So yes. it is an ongoing process. So you can put that as like, become more aware, more aware, more aware, but it's actually not the end goal. He was like, that's, that's like the first stage. That's the beginning. That's the beginning. It is. It really is. <laughs> that's yeah. just where we start. Yeah. But most yeah. people think, oh, yeah, well, that's the goal, awareness. But it's just actually the first, the first stop of the train. And so seen from a particular perspective, you develop the mindfulness so that you're aware of your internal content. Then you start to clean it up a bit so that you're resonating at a higher level and more productive. But then you become aware of what's inside of your present personality. That then, as you do the vision of the eagle, and you begin to see this is a bead on a chain of multiple lifetimes, you then become more aware of your permanent personality. And then this helps you to understand what thoughts, feelings, etc. you're self-generating versus those coming in from the outside. And then at that point, you start to perceive, you can in a healthy way perceive non-physical beings and influences and start to have some discernment about what's the nature of the influences coming in. Because the average person who doesn't do any mindfulness, they are not aware of these influences coming in from the outside at all. They just think it's part of their own internal dialogue, if they're even conscious of it, and it doesn't go just straight to the subconscious. Mm -hmm. In the Rosicrucian tradition, there is a particular uh, exercise or practice that's known as the six essential exercises. And it's basically taking mindfulness to its full extent. They say that if a person does this series of practices, then they will be safeguarded against detrimental effects of all kinds of things in the world. It's really the foundation of everything. So the first three practices are to observe the content in your thoughts, your feelings, and your actions, and then to uh, illuminate what it is so that you can direct your thoughts, feelings, and actions in the best way possible. So first you observe what's there without trying to change it. Just see what you're actually generating. And then you're consciously choosing the higher level thought forms, the higher level emotions, the higher level actions in the world in a fully conscious way. So it's mindfulness taken to a full extent. Then the next practice is one of positivity. No matter how bad things look in your life or the world around you, to look for the positive hidden in it. Mm -hmm. So the Rosicrucians give one example of this. There's a Persian legend of the Christ, where the Christ is walking with a group of disciples past a dead dog, and the dog is rotted and smells, and there's maggots crawling in it. And all of the disciples turn away in disgust, and the Christ looks at it as they walk by, turns to the disciples and smiles and says, 
what beautiful teeth that animal had. It's like always looking for the positive mm-hmm. in anything. Mm-hmm. And then the next exercise is radical openness. Radical openness to new perspectives, radical openness to new information, radical openness to new ways of living and being. And then the sixth and final exercise of it is to harmonize all that together in your daily life. So you've got illuminated mind, illuminated heart, illuminated will, positivity, openness to new things, new ways, so you don't get caught in the old traps. Illuminated will, I don't think we we fully expounded upon that. Okay, so just like you can, in a clear mind state, observe the thoughts you're generating or the emotions you're generating, you can observe the impulses to the actions you take in your life. Mm -hmm. So before you take any action, if you really observe yourself internally, you'll see that there's an impulse toward that action. And some of these actions may be detrimental actions, like I'd rather end up in prison. People that end up in prison have particular problems in impulse control. If they were able to perceive inside themselves the impulse before they took the action, they could choose and say, well, that's not the action I want to be and, taking. And right the now. awareness of the source of the impulse. Exactly. And this is in, in the Kabbalist lineage that I'm studying. And this is what we call the process of bearer, which is a process of the clarification of your desire. Yes. To understand what is driving what you want. Yes. And then ultimately the goal is that what's driving what you want is that Christ's archetype of the being that's in balance that's actually one with the will of the universe. So you try to clarify your desire so that your desire is ontically identical or as close to identical as possible with the will of the universe as expressed through you as a unique incarnation of, you know, the unique self of, of the being of the one, right? So the bearer is the awareness and clarification of your desire until what you want is what God wants and what God wants is what you want. Yes. And then you're yes. really in flow of the universe. It's like this infinity loop of like, all right, what I want is what God wants. What God wants is what I want. And then that's when you're in Beru, you're in the clarification of your desire. Yes. And you've merged with the, the will of the universe. And at, at that point, you've got the prerequisite to do true divine tantra and things of that kind, that not only are you maximizing your ability for the greatest level of pleasure, joy, etc. in sex, but also focusing on maximizing that in your partner. Mm-hmm. And at that point, having as the, the focal goal, the returning to the unity state, that both of you are in such an elevated state, you're both so happy, you're both so joyful, you're both so open, that at that point, there's no shields in place, and the merger to become one and to connect back to the divine, mm-hmm. and then becomes possible. Now, I want to bring out one other hidden thing about these six exercises that it's not always immediately obvious, but in doing these six exercises, we think of them as things you're doing in your consciousness, but everything you do in your consciousness is structuring your energy body. Mm -hmm. So when you do those six exercises, the way it's described by the Rosicrucians is that your heart is a 12-petal lotus, like they talk about in India. The six of the petals of your 12-petal lotus, they say, were developed in earlier times of human evolution. We have to work on another six petals to complete the process in this time period. So each one of those six exercises I just described develop one of the six remaining lotus petals. Once those six remaining lotus petals are developed, all 12 lotus petals of the heart become active. At that point, the heart becomes a fully active center for the entire energy body. 
and it becomes the organizing center for the entire human body of energy Hmm. for a higher alchemical process to take place. If someone wanted to double click on this, go deeper, understand the process of developing this, these six petals of the heart, yes. six, six-fold process, would just, just real quick, where would they go? Maybe you have some resources. Maybe there's a good source yes. material that they could point to. So thank you very much. And the resources I created, there are things that are toward spiritual science, which is developing consciousness, and some that are toward developing energy with the vibrational science. So the introductory course that I have online for the spiritual science is called Essential Teachings and Practices of Spiritual Science. And that goes into great detail about each of the six practices and the six essential practices and describes it uh, everything step by step for how you actually do it in a practical way in your own life. And it also covers a lot of things we haven't touched on about absolutely essential principles for developing consciousness and energy. Mm-hmm. So that's the essential teachings and practices. And, what, and where, where do they go to find that? They go to my website, which is vesica.org. And vesica, again, is that almond-shaped enclosure yep. of the balance. And it's spelled V as in Victor, E-S-I-C-A dot O-R-G. Beautiful. All right. So I want to I wanna zoom out real quick and talk about the imbalance collectively okay. that we're experiencing yes. in the world because um you know in in consuming some of your material and i agree there is a strong arumanic impulse that's sweeping and overreaching into our world yes and this is materialism transhumanism and you even make the connection to AI being actually the the final step in the aromonic victory where everything becomes material, where you've actually split off all of your ability to access the higher, you know, the higher spiritual actualization and therefore split off your ability to access the Christ because you'll be completely out of balance. You'll be overtaken by the aromonic kind of impulse. Yeah. So talk about like, this this principle applied not to the individual but to the collective and like where you see it showing up and and then the correlation to what people see and ascribe to these ideas of like is there actually a satanic we we usually use the word satanic not many people use the word aramonic sure sure but is there a say a satanic undercurrent and are is this aramonic being under underpinning this and is there is there a structure behind it like what's happening here in the collective so the difficulty of discussing this just like with discussing lucifer and araman to begin with is that people associate certain things with the concepts rather than the dynamic reality of what these beings actually are and so when we say something like is there really a satanic force involved with this the short answer is yes but again the difficulty of discussing it is the way that people have such a sensationalized view of it and are often very reactive in in their their approach to it. They've been programmed with all kinds of things about this. It, either it really exists, like in fundamentalist Christianity, and it's behind everything, or it doesn't exist, and that's like a fear thought form you should get over. It's hard to talk about it in a realistic way. But there's definitely, these influences of the Luciferic and Aramonic are very, very strong at all times on a mass societal level, as well as on a personal level. It's just a matter of microcosm and macrocosm in this form between the personal and the societal. So we can see that, for example, in the 1960s, American culture was quite aramonic in, in many ways. 
And as a counter impulse, you then had the counterculture in the 60s form. And, and that was Luciferic. And it became very, it could have become very Christic, but it became mm-hmm. Luciferic because there wasn't a clear understanding of the balance between the polarities. What happens time and time again in society is because we have this simplistic good versus evil polarity idea. It's like this extreme must be good because that extreme is bad, rather than understanding both extremes are unbalanced and you got to so, go to the yeah, center. So, let, so then looking historically, you got, we're coming out of the World War II. It was about, mm-hmm. can we make how many bullets and bombs and yes. science and technology? And then we have the boomer, you know, the boomer. Can you buy everything you and buy, have a perfect you get a physical house, life? You can have a, you know, white picket fence. You can yeah. have all of these different things. We got new food sources that are coming out. We yeah. got everything is material. So that's aramonic in its nature. Yeah. And people are like, fuck this. There's something else here. And then they go swing too far on the pendulum the other side and they get luciferic, which is just, you know, chasing that that bliss, chasing that, chasing that light at the expense of what's ha- happening in the physical world. So what we have to do now, particularly with the psychotropic uh, renaissance that we're in right now, is make sure we don't have happen what happened in the 60s. I mean, we got to learn from history or we're going to repeat it every yeah. time. Yeah. And so, you know, if you look at something like what Timothy Leary uh, told people and he influenced a lot of people with this, he said, you know, with the psychotropics in the 60s, you need to uh, turn on, tune in, and drop out. And well, to turn on and tune in is fantastic. But once you put in the drop out, now you're going to a luciferic thing. I'm not going to, right. to activate myself to go to the center and balance the aramonic aspect of the society. I'm just going to drop out. That's a purely luciferic part of it. Folks, when people don't have discernment, the thing we have to develop at a societal level is discernment and understand that it's always a matter of finding a center between two unbalanced polarities with every social question, everything that we're doing, everything in our personal lives. It's always the balance point, the the radical center Mm. between two extremes. Because we don't want the the psychotropic renaissance right now to turn into this dropout thing, which could easily happen. Because it can also happen that we become extremely self-absorbed that my internal process is so fascinating as I'm working through all of my old stuff and I'm developing these new citizen powers and abilities and seeing these things. We have to be careful of what was discussed in the past. And this is really at a societal level as well as individual. Uh, there are certain challenges that occur on the path of spiritual development. So one of the first challenges that I, I talk about in my work, classical idea, that happens when you begin to awaken spiritually is something that is known in the Rosicrucian tradition as Luciferic inflation. That's where you begin to get a little bit of knowledge, a little bit of spiritual powers or siddhas, and immediately, as soon as you do that, Luciferic beings will come in and they'll whisper in your ear that, oh yes, not only are you on the path now and awakening, but you are so incredibly powerful and advanced and significant and they'll start telling you all these things about you're the reincarnation of the most advanced people in human history, and you're this great avatar, and all these things about how you're better than other people, and you're more advanced than other people, and you're incredibly significant. And so the Luciferic inflation stages, you see a lot in spiritual circles, where people get overly inflated, mm-hmm. overly self-absorbed, and self-referential, and a uh, way inflated estimate of their own level of spiritual sure. development. And so that's something we have to be very careful Which of. Which ultimately is 
harmonic in the fact that they're becoming spiritual materialists. That's exactly what happens, yes. So it's almost like the Luciferic, there is a, there's a, is a beautiful intention behind the, the core of the Luciferic impulse. Oh, yes. But when it gets mixed in with the aromonic materialism and blends in an in a unhealthy way, in the shadow way, yes. then you get Luciferic inflation. The Rosicrucians have a saying about this, that everybody wants to give themselves to Lucifer because that looks like fun. But what happens is that he says the karma of Lucifer is Araman. That if you go too far out on that edge to where you're unbalancing your brain chemicals and your physical body and all by doing too much of this stuff and being too self-absorbed, you're going to burn your life out and you're going to end up in a really rough aromonic space. And so these things happen all the time. They're in constant dynamic interaction. And it is very, very possible to become a spiritual materialist even though you think you're going this one path Mm -hmm. on spiritual development. So we have to be careful about not understanding creating a center through the psychotropic renaissance that we have now and not falling prey to a really unbalanced self-absorption and way overestimating our level of spiritual development with Luciferic inflation on this path. Uh, Because, again... The only thing that's going to change the world is people changing their consciousness and changing their way of living and having discernment between these different forces. Because everything in our society right now is based on neurolinguistic programming and presenting things to us in a way that is meant to make us into a stimulus response organism and push our buttons. Even the way issues are described, they're described in terminology that's meant to push some subconscious impulse inside of us to push us to a particular action. Yeah. So, um, you know, at, at, um, you know, at the center that I'm involved with and going to step into the board chair of, um, which was formerly the center for integral wisdom and it's going to be world philosophy and religion. They have a term, you know, and this is Mark Gaffney, Zach Stein, again, they call it techno feudalism. And it's this idea of like the Skinner Penland, you know, kind of idea of complete control of people's actions, which we're really seeing play out in social media because we're being rewarded and coerced subtly in all of these different ways. Mm -hmm. And you make a uh, not so, not so veiled implication that there's, if you were going to claim an incarnation of that impulse, you'd look at somebody like Zuckerberg who's behind Meta, right? Like I saw that in the video of like, all right, this is the control, like the control impulse, which you link to our, the Aramonic impulse, which is basically to control all aspects of, of being. So, so explain, explain that a little bit more of what I, what I saw. So what always happens is that there's going to become certain organizations, certain focal points for any societal impulse. And so you see who gets the most rewarded (laughs) by Araman in the sense of mammon. You know, they get power, they get money, they get all these things. And so that's what we're seeing with the tremendous amount of censorship with uh, what can be talked about in social media today. And it's, it's even worse in Europe than it is in North America. Mm-hmm. You know, what's happening now there where all of the social media outlets have to agree to the rules against misinformation from the European Union. And they're saying they're going to take down Twitter because Twitter didn't agree to sign on to their... Yeah, their Elon's new like, fuck that. 
Yeah. This is, we have good to luck. look at- Good luck taking down Twitter. We, we have to look at what the, the organizational centers are there. And this, and it's going to keep shifting. You know, what was the, the power centers a hundred years ago were not exactly the same as what they are now. It's going to keep dynamically evolving. So this is where we really need to develop discernment. So I don't like to focus too much on any one particular organization or any one particular person because the people can change. People may be working some really destructive things at one time, and then they have an enlightenment experience, and they, sure. they try to change redemption it. Is, redemption is part of the source code, right? It's so, always possible. So part of the thing for me is, is I always try to live life without enemies. Like, nobody, no man is my enemy. No mm -hmm. person is my enemy. Any person that I have a conflict with, and hopefully we can both get more enlightened and work ourselves out of it. Even organizations, hopefully, can, can be adapted. In, in a way, the only enemy is imbalance. Exactly. But we have to see where those imbalances are for what we want to support or not support and find the ways. Because there's, there's probably never been a time in human history that we didn't live in a coercive system. The system always tries to reward you for doing what they want and they punish you if you don't. Whether that punishment is being banned from social media or demonetization or whatever, it's very, very real. And so if we can understand this in the larger context, and again, it comes back to the very simple thing, of look at the two extremes and find the center. Uh, but if we lose freedom of speech, which we're quickly moving toward, then it's going to be a lot, lot harder. Because we have to see that if we understand the development of modern technology from a spiritual perspective, what's really happened here is something where we now have the ability to almost instantaneously transfer ideas across the planet. And as long as we have the freedom to keep transferring those ideas, then in the end, the good will, will win out. But the more that the censorship comes in and the more constriction that we feel on what we talk about, because I feel constriction on what I talk about, and my things are certain things I'd love to talk about, but I know instant banning from social media and demonetization hmm. if I do. So one of the ways to work around that is talk about it in terms of principles. These are the key principles. Here are the things we can work on in our own lives. Mm -hmm. Here are the things we can work towards societally that we can reward the activity for societally and help support the people who are doing it. So if we see a particular organization or a leader of it is not kowtowing to a censorship regime, that's somebody we should support. And this is a very simple principle. Yeah, I agree. There was... Um... I want to just touch on, and, and we're, we're moving towards a close here. It's been yes. a, a beautiful conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, there's this idea of the, the Masons. Yes. And you actually referred to some symbology in, in the kind of Masonic tradition of using stars. And you pointed to a bunch of different stars in different corporation logos and different things, which was kind of identification of like all right we're part of the same we're part of the same team here as this kind of like a symbolism so in some ways i think of masons like one part of my mind is like man it's like my fraternity you know i was a kappa sigma <laughs> yeah and it was cool yeah and we did some stuff but really we just kind of got together and we had some drinks yeah and like whatever yeah you, know, you go to the lodge you smoke a cigar with the boys you do a few different yeah. you know kind of flaccid occult rituals that don't really have much power yeah and you know like we do shit in the dark and whatever like and speak some things and yeah. evoke some whatever it was just it was all very flaccid and very yeah. like impotent 
you're trying to create your own initiatory process. Right, but, but it was like, it was all just kind of a it. group that got together to uh, play intramurals and, yeah, and you yeah. know, launch kegs of beer into the into yeah. University of Richmond. <laughs> like, really, that was pretty much it. And some part of me is like, yeah, that's, that's the fucking Mesa's. But then I'm open to the idea yeah. that there's actually a, a stronger, deeper power structure that exists. So where where do you fall in the balance of those extremes, whether this is a, a major influential piece of what we're experiencing that's hidden and that actually they want us to think that it's like, the, you know, Kappa Sigma where you're just kind of getting together, hanging with the boys and drinking some beers or whether it's actually a, a foundational power structure that has deep influence even now. So the first thing we have to be aware of is that there's a difference between what was called operative masonry, which were the people that actually learned how to build cathedrals and build structures. So they're operative masons because they actually built stuff. They were literally masons. But that became what became known as speculative masonry around the 1700s, where these people no longer were being trained to build sacred buildings, and it became a type of fraternal lodge. Uh, and these types of organizations can change energetics over time. And certainly there was a big change at the time they moved from operative masonry training to speculative masons, just, mm-hmm. you know, meeting on a Wednesday night or whatever. So in the original operative masons, you know, this goes back to the Temple of Solomon and the knowledge in the Western world, really before that in Egypt, to be able to use sacred geometry to enhance the power of sacred power spots on the earth to create real operative energy devices as temples on the earth's energy grid. And that's what the Masons were very, very skilled at. They knew the secrets of how to do this. And so the original original operative Masons, and they in their own mythology go back to the Temple of Solomon, Uh, understood how to use sacred geometry the way that higher spiritual beings did to create the physical world, Mm -hmm. to use the same patterns and principles to create our world, to help create a new golden age. So I believe the original Masonic principle and intent to be something highly beneficial to create the new golden age, to know how to create temples. And of course, part of that was create the temple of the human body. There's uh, some very, very deep levels of that that are not well understood anymore. So one of the original Masonic principles was something called the royal art. And the royal art was based on, we're going to learn the sacred geometry principles that higher spiritual beings use to create everything in our world. And once we learn it, it's going to be our responsibility at a later point in time to create the patterns of the next round of spiritual evolution. Mm. Just like this earth was created by these higher beings, and just like human beings become parents and we have children, and then the children do the things that we used to do after we move on, same thing for spiritual beings. Spiritual beings made everything for the earth for this round of evolution, but for the next round of evolution, human beings need to learn the same patterns, and we need to create the conditions of the next round of evolution. Now, that became things like the Masonic influences on the founders of the United States to create the patterns of how do you create a constitutional democracy. And they were absolutely brilliant in it. Mm-hmm. And we're starting to throw away a little bit too much of that because, yeah, they weren't great people in all cases. And yeah, they did bad things. And yeah, they may have had slaves, not excusing any of that. But nonetheless, what they came up with as a framework of checks and balances yeah. so that nobody in the government can take over everything and become a dictator was absolutely brilliant. And that comes out of the Masonic work. 
all the original people that worked on the Constitution, Declaration of Independence, they were all Masons. And that is something I think is highly beneficial. Mm -hmm. So we've got a very esoteric side of it. How do we use sacred geometry to amplify power spots and create temples and things of this kind and create our own body into a temple in some of the deeper teachings? But around the 1700s, this becomes an intellectual thing. It becomes a, an organization like a fraternal lodge. And again, had some very good outlets like creating the United States' democracy. Uh, then as we move on, I believe my experience of it has been that a lot of the esoteric knowledge that was held in masonry has become very, very diluted. So uh, I don't believe that the masons are a primary influencer in where things are going right now. There may be some in people who are Masons and understand some of that work, but I know from my experience of modern-day Masons and Masonic lodges, I am not a Mason myself, but because I teach sacred geometry, and that's a big thing for Masons, I was invited many years ago to give a talk to one of the oldest Masonic lodges in the United States, which is in Savannah, Georgia. And I gave a talk there about uh, the foundations of sacred geometry including as it's reflected in certain types of Masonic imagery and things of that kind, but really talking about the whole principle of sacred geometry. At the end of it, the different past masters of the lodge all came out and said, oh, thank you so much for giving the talk to us. You know, none of us here know anything about any of this. <laughs> and what yeah. you always hear is like, oh, there's this one guy, Craig, in like Kansas City who knows something about it. But it's always like right, right, right. some mythical person in some place, but nobody here knows anything about it. And... They even, I don't know what came of this, but at the time they were saying, oh, there's like an, even an impulse now that rather than spending years working through the grades from one to 33 to become a 33 degree Mason, that maybe we can put something together that a person can become a 33 degree Mason in like a weekend or something. And that way they can come to some more of the meetings and the Shriners thing and all right, this type right, of thing. Right. But in, in my limited experience of it, maybe there's a whole nother hidden cabal of it that I've never seen and have right. no contact with. But the, the average Masonic Lodge it's more of a fraternal lodge, and there are very small number of people there that know anything about the real esoteric background of this. It's more for business networking and social stuff. Uh, so it could be that they still have some real influential things somewhere, but I tend to think these things like change over time, and you know the ball has been passed to some other control groups that are now working in some different configurations mm -hmm. because certainly the external masonic lodges if you actually spend time with them and talk to the people there they're not highly esoteric yeah i mean it seems like originally it was a christic impulse it was about bringing this you yes. know div how do you bring the divine light into manifest yeah. you know Araman and lucifer balanced in this christic impulse and then influenced by the shadow versions of 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 both where it was like all right let's you know let's get drunk and let's <laughs> let's you know let's make more money yes you know and it, so it almost was diluted and also you know mildly corrupted as we all are by these by these influences one, one thing that happens over time is that organizations as they have like the original founding people die off is a lot of the knowledge can get lost so within a lot of esoteric organizations as time goes on uh, it's definitely the case that the vast majority of external Masonic members know very little about any of the spiritual principles mm -hmm. or what's behind their rituals. Yeah. And I've met a lot of nice people who are Masons, but they're not knowledgeable in this area. And so it becomes a thing that for those Masons who actually are interested in this stuff and who became a Mason because they want to 
you know, understand these spiritual principles, and they find that there's not much within the lodges now to learn from with that. It might be good for political or business networking, but they learn very little inside of it. So some of them want to rejuvenate the esoteric impulse within masonry, and others are just happy to have it become more yeah. of a networking thing. And I've been invited to become a mason, and I'm not putting masons or masonry down, but uh, my thing was that I'm not certain why I would want to join this uh, because I'm, I know more about this subject, and I say that hopefully without ego, but I gave the lecture to people and they knew right, nothing right. about it, than the people that I, I would now have above me in a hierarchical structure. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. Plus, I have no personal uh, urge whatsoever to join any hierarchical structure, and I feel a little bit sometimes like Woody Allen saying, that I wouldn't want to join any organization that would have somebody like me for a member. <laughs> so, so I'm not a big organization guy. Um, but I think if you look for where some of the controls are being pulled today, at one time certainly it was the Masons. Uh, I'm not so certain that's where the focal point is right now. Yeah, it seems that now we're in the time of the democratization of all of this esoteric wisdom and yes. knowledge. And it's time for it to no longer be in closed societies. You know, we don't have people going around with swords and guns <laughs> killing the people who have the esoteric knowledge. They may yes. censor some of it here or there. They may, yes. But actually, it feels like the powers that be are almost, they've forgotten how powerful this esoteric wisdom is, so they, they really don't have. even see it coming. They don't care about it. They point. don't care about it because yeah. they've, they've, they've forgotten how powerful it was. Yes, And I think that's to the advantage of those of us who are now democratizing this information, people like yourself, who are bringing this information into light is that, you know, those powers that be are like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Like, that's not going to amount to anything. Are they putting bodies in the streets? Are they, you know, trying yeah. to uh, go against this pharma mandate or whatever it might be? Like, they're focused on the, on these other different things. But I think there's immense power in this movement of, of remembering, which is putting back together yes. all of this information and synthesizing many of these different schools from the, you know, hermetic principles, the Rosicrucian principles, the Gnostic principles, yes. the Kabbalist principles, the deep Buddhist principles. Every, every, everything is invited into this new alchemy and this new synergy that's being created. And uh, I think, you know, those powers that are opposed to it are really sleeping to the to the dragon that's awakening. Yes. For me, one of the big impulses with creating the, the Vesica Institute was that I had no interest in being a part of an external hierarchical organization. And I didn't even want my, I don't want myself to be seen as like anyone who's like a infallible source. Sure. It's all about uh, the original Rosicrucian impulse was for everyone to connect directly to spirit without any external intermediary. And my purpose with Vesica was to be able to gather the information from many different sources where it's very fragmented right now and often very unclear, and to put it together in a clear, concise context where people could save time by accessing the information and the practices that they're going to do with whatever they choose to do with it, because their path might not be the same as my path. And it's nothing about following me or my being anything other than a person collecting and transmitting the information. It's all about them getting what they need to connect directly and understand this incredible legacy 
that a people that came before us, which also includes us in previous times, mm-hmm. put together as bodies of knowledge and practices that will help us to develop in this lifetime and help the world around us in this lifetime to get to the next stage it needs to get to. Yeah. Thank you for your work. Thank, Thank you for coming and uh, and sharing your wisdom here on the podcast and, uh, and illuminating this field. And um, you've mentioned where people can go and find you. And I just really encourage people. I mean, that's I got to absorb a lot of this content before this conversation. It's just fantastic what you've been able to do. So keep going. And uh, I look forward to how our own paths will weave as we uh, go to democratize access <laughs> to the <laughs> yes. truth. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. And I love the work you do. So it's a great pleasure to be here. Yeah. Thank you so much. And thank you everybody for listening. We love you and we'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning into this podcast with Robert Gilbert. I hope it inspired and illuminated some aspects of your own psyche and the cosmos. I love you guys and I'll see you next week.